Welcome back, everyone, to Rules of the Arena podcast number 62. My guest this week is Morgan Kinney. He joined me from the faraway land of Montana. Morgan is an archaeologist I stumbled across TikTok last year. He was debunking ideas like Oak Island, Egyptian, and Grand Canyon, and some other wild ideas that we've all seen across the expanse of the Internet. And we covered a lot of ground on this episode. I wasn't paying attention as much as I should have, and we went a little bit longer than normal. came out to be about a three-hour show. Nonetheless, I hope you enjoy, and with that, I will let Morgan do the talking. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, something's wrong with this. I'll, I'll take it. There's, a, there's an old cat here in town who all he does is fix tools, fix tools, fix generators, fix stuff like that. It, he's in his 80s, has a little shop, and, you know, if you have an old, old belt sander, that's who you take to, and <laughs> fixes it up. And I called him, and I was like, can you fix something? fix a camp stove like this oh shit yeah bring it back <laughs> i haven't yet because well covid right, right. And everything his shop's always open so i know he's still kicking but it's like well one of these days i'll get over there after i get my my shots you know right. i uh, i haven't done that yet mostly yeah it's on my to-do list but yeah work's on the to-do list <laughs> yeah work being work and if it knocks you down for two days or a day you know my wife got the first shot she was down for 32 hours you know, she just, it was, it was hard. And I was like, well, I've got all this other stuff to do. I'll wait till we're in a better spot for that. Whether or not that'll happen, right. <laughs> you know, but, uh, probably next week we've got, we've got three or four clinics in town and I've got a friend that works for one. And she's like, you know, eight forty-five at night, we need 36 more people to come down and get shots here. We have, we have, vaccinations for this 36 more people mm-hmm. come down get 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 a shot get a beer you know they, they have the <laughs> uh you know they had one down at the brewery that was like a, a mobile vaccination clinic mm-hmm. at one of the breweries you know go get your shot and if you're feeling all right go and get a beer it's like right. win yeah, <laughs> i just left my parents place and then not an hour later i'm on the road my mom texts me like hey the local pharmacy has some extra shots are you still in town I'm like come on <laughs> right but it was uh, it was, you know, really tight, and they had the schedule of only only this demographic could get in, age, mm-hmm. age, or you know, medical condition or whatever. And then it was, the, then they extended it. Can't remember what range, like group A, group B, group C, and then everybody else. And for some reason, every county it didn't talk to any other county. So you, you know, here in Missoula County, they're going by the numbers. You can only get a vaccine if you're above 75, et cetera, et cetera. But you go to Deer Lodge County, and they can't give them away. <laughs> Nobody's going into the store. Nobody wants to get, you know, half of it is because there's a bunch of people who think the government's have to get them. And right, half yeah. people are like, I don't, I live on a ranch and I'm pretty self-sufficient. I'm not going into town anyway until, you know, the end of the month. I'm not going in now. Right. much to do. So... That's where my like my little sister and her boyfriend drove over there, got their jabs, drove home. Perfect. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's a fun, it's an unseasonably busy year for me and my industry. I typically do eighty five percent of my sales June to October. Okay. And I am twenty nine percent over where I was last year to date in sales, and it's just nuts. What do you I, sell? I work in the paint and coatings industry. Okay. Uh, now that we're streaming live, I'm not going to say who because they, they monitor the social media world. 
heavily. <laughs> oh, sure. Sure. Everybody does. Yeah. Everybody so, does. I'm sure. Well, you hear <laughs> stories about it when you go to headquarters for training. And oh, nobody yeah. believes it. But then uh, we had one of our uh, guy that I used to work with indirectly went to one of our, uh, one of our um, uh, vendors uh, factory and they do a tour and then you're supposed to take your cell phone and put it in this little, you know, the blocking box or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they give you the tour and you get your cell phone at the end. Well, he took it with him or his extra one with him, took photos. It was on Uh-oh. Facebook less than 24 hours before they got a call from their corporate office to our corporate office saying, take this off yesterday or you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Oh, they do monitor that. <laughs> yeah. I, I was on a project where the, the person who was working with us, she had never, she'd never been on a project before out, out in the Southwest. She was new to the crew. We didn't really know anything about her. And she took some pictures of rock art that we found. Sorry, I got something in my eye. Oh, um, she took some pictures of some rock art that we found, which was pretty significant. Like we had only, it was one of those, I've only seen a painting of that painting kind of thing. Um, and she posted pictures of this rock art, which probably would would have been fine, because the company I was working for at the time had a had a, their policy was you can't show like identifiable features. You can't take a landscape picture and have the mountains in the background because somebody right. can extrapolate where you are. Um, and and she posted these pictures, and we we got back to the field vehicle, and I'm like getting into the truck and my phone beeps because I had just enough signal to get a message. <laughs> it's from my boss and it's in all capital letters. He's like, you guys are done for the day. Head back to the hotel. I will meet you there. And I'm like, oh, shit. And, it, and it came in like, you know, he'd sent it like 10 minutes before. I'm like, that's a two and a half hour drive for him. It mm-hmm. was an hour drive for us. We got there and he's pacing. And it was what she had written she had tagged all of us and she tagged him and the company who it was a it was a it comes down delete everything he looks at the three of us that he likes because we worked for him before he's like go private on your social media untag yourself delete yourself all this stuff do not because it was incredibly insensitive and it was, mm-hmm. it was really just not professional at all and as far as i know that individual never got another job in the field so okay. <laughs> yeah yeah I, I mean sorry to interrupt you there um oh, no worries. We're, we're about seven minutes in here i figure i should mm. <laughs> we should probably do introductions. yeah you actually <laughs> sent me a you sent me an outline it's all real let, yeah, let's let's be professional about it. <laughs> well, we're Go by what the paperwork says. <laughs> <laughs> if you listen to another yeah. show called Department of Fence from the same studio, uh, we are a far cry from professional. <laughs> oh, sure. sure. But uh, well, Morgan, welcome to Rules of the Arena. Appreciate you taking yeah, the time well. out of the weekend to be on here. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I've been be following fun. you on TikTok for, wait, oh, God, I think probably fall of last year. Uh, okay. You tearing apart some what was it something about oak island i think it was oh sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> which one you're right yeah and and i i just about fell out of my chair laughing at it because i have never i don't i've never subscribed to the conspiracy theory realm 
I mean, aliens, Bigfoot, I'm, you know, I'd say a, a skeptical believer at best. Like, as soon as I see it with my own two eyes, fine, then sure. Th- yeah, that's but completely until different. Then, I mean, here we are in 2021 and nobody can take a, a high-res photo. Yeah. Kind of blows no, my that's... mind. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same way. You know, if, if when it shows up, when there's proof of it, when it's, you know, it's tactile and in my hand, right. sure. <laughs> until then, I'm not going to put that much effort into really you know pushing the pushing that envelope until it you know actually says something right um, i just wanted to have you on the show and give you a little bit more than 59 seconds to right. talk about whatever we feel like <laughs> yeah yeah but do you no, just want to introduce yourself to listeners that sure are fortunate enough to not be on tiktok for <laughs> as great as that app uh, is. right uh sure uh my name's morgan kenning i'm an archaeologist uh operating out of uh, Missoula, Montana. Um, I, I work for a federal land agency, but I'm not going to say which one because there is a guy that says, hey, I tell you what we, we can put on TV and what we can't or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'm a real archaeologist, not not what you see on television. <laughs> not You mean Dr. Graham Hancock is not real? <laughs> I so want him to be because punching air is boring. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's not an archaeologist, so <laughs> that's the fun part about it is that everyone is like, oh, he knows everything. It's like, but he's not. Right. Do, do, do you want the, do you want an electrician taking out your appendix or a doctor? <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, kind of the way I look at some of this stuff because I have so many people kind of push oh well what about this or what about these these things and it's like well where's it coming from then mm-hmm. that's that's one of the big things for me is when you look at a thing okay the thing's cool where's it come from you know because you can tell a lot about you know the 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 intent of something you know if if, if you find something and it's amazing and it has very little little coverage or very little attention or whatever just because i mean take take your reason and it hasn't been heavily researched or something like that then it's kind of like okay this is curious why hasn't it been looked at you know what what you know what are the things that come together what are the things that you know all line up for it to exist that makes sense but oh i saw it on facebook or a guy who doesn't know what he's talking about or never took a class or never you know, showed that they have an awareness of how the industry actually works is going to tell me something about my job. It's like, okay. One of my favorite memes out on the internet was uh, everything you read on the internet is true and it's quoted by Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> oh, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, and that's a joke I've played with. I'm sure you've seen it. Oh, it's on the internet. It's obviously right. obvious true. <laughs> So from Montana, uh, what what was life yep. like growing up out in those neck of the woods? Um, outside. <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. That's. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, I'm I, I'm gonna tell you right now. I'm going to be probably the most anomalous person you've had on your podcast. <laughs> I have never owned a game console. Okay, you're lucky. I'm 37. I'm I've never I've never owned a game console. You know, my brother had a, had a Game Boy, and when he graduated high school, he bought Nintendo. 
but I never had them. So I, when people are like, oh, I played this video game, all this stuff, I'm like, no, like, no. So I was always outside. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, uh, I went to the proverbial, uh, well, it was, it was three rooms, three room schoolhouse, you know, oh. 36, 30, 32 or 36 kids, kindergarten through eighth grade. <laughs> um, went there for a couple years, homeschooled for, t- for, for two years. Uh, my, my high school graduating class was 50 kids. You know, I, I, my grandparents owned a ranch. Um, so I grew up doing ranch work. Um, my dad was, a, but when I was a kid, my dad was a logger. And then in the mid nineties, logging in Montana kind of dried up for half a dozen reasons that all have, have not worked out the greatest for those I'm sure who had a plan and, you know, heavy equipment operator now. So he, you know, we moved around the state a couple times, uh, and it was, it was always go outside, you know, go play outside. So, uh, yeah, it was when you when you think of Montana, it's it's Huck Finn without the river, right? You know, and always shoes on because you know the dry grass out here just poke a hole right through the sole of your foot. So, <laughs> you know, I haven't so, been to Montana uh, for a long time. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be 33 this year. I think I was 10, no eight years old. We went my parents took me up to Glacier for the first time. Okay. <clears throat> And yeah, I can't remember Glacier. I, I would not hate retiring out there someday. Bring a lot of money. Right. But, <laughs> it, you know, well, you know, especially with like COVID right now, um, so many people have moved here. I mean, I mean, immense numbers of people. There are no houses for sale. They don't even hit the market. They don't even hit the newspaper. They're mm-hmm. sold. Um, there's houses for sale that... The, the the best thing to do would be to light them on fire them. they're not worth anything and they're selling for three hundred thousand dollars because somebody from texas is like i'm gonna run away to montana where the virus can't follow me and they bring their you know they bring their their, their extended family and it's it's uncle bob and jeb went down to the bar drinking and they got covid because nobody was wearing a mask and they bring it with them so uh but you know before that even there's there's nothing here there's the 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 main industry is tourism Mm -hmm. logging is pretty thin because of of uh you know the um just the way things went in the mid 90s where all these regulations came in and no one was given a chance it seems to actually adapt to them it was a you know hey we want to do a b and c for the logging industry to make it less destructive because it is but if you do it right it's just like farming mm-hmm. you know well it was a we want to do this and you guys have to have it figured out next friday you know the, the equivalent of that so there was just a lot of that collapse mm-hmm. ranching you barely break even i don't i mean ranching is not a is is not a, a get rich sort of thing right <laughs> and and then you know like like i guess bozeman has a huge or a very large tech uh industry mm-hmm. right now but you, you either be got to, got to have a really good job that allows you to work from home mm-hmm. or you better be in the medical profession because a full-time job 
here is $12 an hour. You know, and you need to work two full-time jobs to pay for an apartment. Right. You know, um, the, the, the only reason that we have this house is that my wife inherited it from her parents. And that, that was it. Otherwise, we would be spending somewhere north of $1,400 on an apartment or a rental house big enough, and we wouldn't be able to have half the animals we do and no yard for, to speak of because you see people are like, oh, I can make $500,000 on two lots if I cut my backyard in half. So then these little houses that are this wide but this tall <laughs> all grow up, and, and it's just like... You, <laughs> looks like somebody just stacked some corrugated tin straight up in the ground. It's like, what is that? Oh, modern, modern housing. Right. <laughs> but, um, but it's still, it's still pretty wild out here. Drive, drive five minutes and there's no people. Right. Kind of and that's the part so, that I like. Uh, being, yeah. This is uh, almost a little over 20 years in customer service and sales. I'm checked out and I still have a long ways to go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Yeah got to take care of yourself right <laughs> take a trip sooner rather than later right before you get burned up yeah, yeah. well then that's what i try to do i'd take an extended weekend every quarter and then once or maybe okay. twice a year get out of the five state area sure except for last year that kind of got screwed up a little bit but yeah well most everything got screwed up uh, last year 2019 did a shotgun tour of national parks in colorado and utah for a week okay and, that's cool yep, yeah that was fun celebrate yeah. with buddy's wedding at the end of it Little beat up, being held together with KT tape and moleskin, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, that's just part of the part of the day, right? <laughs> so when did yeah. you first start become interested in history as general, and how did that lead into archaeology and anthropology? Um, probably when I was a wee little kid. Um, so uh, one of the one of the things you know, being far out in the middle of nowhere, you know, growing up in Florence when I was second, first and second grade, and then, or second, third grade in Florence, I think. And then, you know, fourth and fifth grade in Hall, which is that big, you know. Um, before the internet, there's nothing to do. And, you know, you move, like, I moved out to these places, you know, because my parents moved us out there. And I found out uh, uh, about three years ago, why we moved to Hall. And my mother looked me square in the eyes and went, we moved out there because your dad's a paramedic. And that's where his family's from. And I was like, uh, who? You know, this is not our family. Right. Um, so we moved out to Hall and I was the only not rancher's kid. You know, there was one other kid who was, who didn't, whose father wasn't a rancher and his dad was a railroader. So, but they, they had all grown up together. Here I am walking in you know, 11, 12, and I'm this odd duck out of everything. So I read a lot of books. And when we would leave Hall and we'd go back to Bitterroot to see my, my mother's parents, my, my grandparents who had the ranch, if I, wasn't in the, if I wasn't out doing work and helping my grandfather, I would be in the house with no cable TV, no no movies, no VCR. I mean, this is my grandparents. They read books. So I would sit down with these books that, you know, a, a normal kid is not going to sit down and read. 
And first, you know, you're flipping through because, oh, the pictures are cool. And then you actually start reading the captions under the pictures. And then you start reading the book itself. So while, while kids are reading, like I didn't read Tolkien until I was in my 20s. But I read everything about James Cook and Magellan and all of those time life books. I don't remember. don't know if you remember those. The ones that come in the series, like the loggers and the cowboys and the miners, and you know that the the that's twenty five volumes, and it's all modern information in nineteen fifty two. So it's it's not even relevant anymore. You know, you're reading some of it, and my grandfather gave me those books. I was flipping through it, and I'm looking at them like the language in it. If I were to read a passage on TikTok, I'd be canceled. For the, they would come down and they bury me in concrete somewhere because it's obviously not written for 2020 or 2021. It's using the vernacular from back then, which is not the kindest. Um, And of course, you know, like, like, like uh, James Cook and, and Lewis and Clark and colonization and stuff is all glazed over because it's nobody's making, nobody's loud enough to hear the other side yet. But those were the books I was reading, you know, um, the one that sticks in my head. And I actually got another copy from a, from my tattoo artist um, who was cleaning out his uncle's uh, house. It was called Men, Ships in the Sea. as a National Geographic book written by this guy uh, named Alan Villers, who died in like 1975. But it was a collection of of articles and stories that he actually wrote for National Geographic during his his tenure as a as a oceanic journalist starting in the 20s. Like his first voyage was him and a buddy decided to sign up for the sailing ship that left Australia, sailed around the horn 19 1923 or 4, one of the last grain runners, his buddy died halfway through the voyage, got crushed in an accident and and uh, he never went home, never went back to land. He was a sailor in the Navy and Royal Navy. And, and all of these articles, it was a, the start was the er- earliest man. Give a man something that floats and he will build himself a boat. That's the first line of that book. And and then it went through history, you know, little men, you know, uh, indigenous peoples figuring out how rafts might work, regardless of where you are on the planet. You know, early people figuring out rafts, and then you, prog- you 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 go through history, and you wind up the Greeks at the Battle of Salamis, and then they have this. There was an article in there, and this is what really kind of got me into underwater archaeology was a shipwreck that uh, Jacques Cousteau discovered off the coast of Menorca, I think, and it, it pretty basic. You know, oh, look at the look at the amphorae, look at the look at the pottery, look at all this stuff. The ship itself is largely gone, but uh, you know, twenty one hundred years old. Oh, that's cool. And it go, went all the way up through, you know, Magellan, James Cook, Christopher Columbus, uh, all the way up dreadnoughts in the First World War, nuclear powered aircraft carriers, and the modern age when this book was written, which the third edition, which is the first one I had, published in nineteen sixty eight. So. You know, it's the height of the Cold War where the, the blurb about the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier is that big because you can't let state secrets out, <laughs> you know, and books like that. So there were some of those books that were ancient Egypt, you know, Howard Carter quality 
archaeology. So very, very much looking at it through this colonial lens that, you know, is, is heavily influenced by the British mindset. You know, you didn't have a lot of Egyptian archaeologists who are from Egypt and indigenous to Egypt at that time period. You had helpers. You know, you had the guys that knew everything and because you were British, you just claimed what they said as yours and wrote a book. So all of that stuff is what I had to grow up with. And okay, it's cool. And it was very interesting to me. And that's that's where I kind of, I was going to be a historian or I was going to be an archaeologist. Um, Indiana Jones, of course, is a movie that we all know. I love that movie. And not once did I actually think that's what archaeology was. But yeah, I like that movie. Um, and, and then as I, you know, growing up, uh, I got really interested in, uh, finding things. Old cars were always just cool. Um, uh, I love old airplanes, as you can tell. Uh, that was fostered when I was a kid too, because some of those books were like the old Jane's, uh, complete schematic books where you, you know, for target identification that my grandfather had from the 50s just really, you know, stuff that I really liked. And, you know, I get into high school, cars and girls kind of steer me away from all that history stuff. But then I go to college and I go, I don't know what I want to do. And I struggled for a couple of years and I was going to be a journalist, but I couldn't ever commit to, yes, I'm going to major in journalism until somebody said, well, why don't you be an archaeologist? And I blinked and I went, you can do that. <laughs> so um so yeah i i i went into the anthropology department got the the course list looked at it and was like well i've taken this one and this one win okay and then i started doing that and i i uh worked through that took a couple years off because i got burned out then went back crushed it and started working in the field so so yeah, uh, <clears throat> it's it's always, I've always had my nose in a book, I guess. I can't hear you. Uh, helps if I, you know, unmute after I cough. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah, no, it's like, uh oh. <laughs> so what's the oh. pipeline from you have your degree and then going about and actually getting a job in the field and getting a chance to work out in the field, of course. For me or in general? In general, or for you, both. Um, well, for, well, for me, you know, I actually started doing archaeology work during my undergrad. And it was, first it was work study, so I got paid some paltry wage. And then it was uh, volunteer, and then it was internship, and then it was paid internship, which is different than work study. Um and uh, I was doing I was doing the lab work, so artifacts in in a curation space, either cleaning them, identifying them, repacking them. Uh, there's a, there's a there's a standard you have to pack artifacts in. Can't use uh, paper with any acid in it. You can't use you know have to use Smithsonian spec things, and this is based on their entire preservation program at the Smithsonian, um, and and that's. All repositories are kind of held to that bar. So 
when I started, uh, actually one of my best friends was doing her master's thesis and she was taking the entirety of the repository at the University of Montana and taking it from essentially a bunch of boxes down in the basement that hadn't been looked at for, well, we were, we were curating boxes from dig sites during the WPA era of the depression. So, you know, you know, archeological projects when they were building Grand Coulee Dam, stuff like that. Um, we were actually turning all of those into searchable preserved collections. And then there was a bunch of repatriation stuff that was involved in that because there's a lot of artifacts and yeah and, and boxes with with people in them that hadn't I mean that that just got lost because not because the the records were missing or didn't exist it was they were in a box somewhere and no one knew where they look and that's what her her project was so when I first started I kind of you know the you know, the, the, the buggy whip is what I got first before getting the horse and the cart. I got the buggy whip, which is you start in the lab <laughs> and no field work at all. And then because I had to take a field school for graduation, I got some field experience. But um, because I was, you know, I, I didn't have the resources to take six weeks and go dig in the woods and not work. I couldn't do a field school, so I did an independent study, but because I was doing all this internship work, I got to go out, instead of being in the lab, go out for like a week and be essentially a teacher's assistant, but that's how I got my introduction to, oh, hey, here's field work, you're digging a meter by meter square in the ground and you're going down in five centimeter increments or soil change increments digging into the ground and this is how you're collecting artifacts and recording everything within the field. Um, and then I graduated and wouldn't you know it, I didn't do archeology span for a year. I got a job that actually paid somewhat decently and it was involved. It, it involved cars in a very large machine that I could pick up cars with and then maybe drop them, <laughs> you know? So it was like, this is good. I'll figure it out. I'll get some bills paid. And then I had an opportunity to go to Arizona. Yes. So I packed up my dog, packed up my Toyota, parked that green Dodge pickup at my mom's house because it couldn't, it was just going to be too damn slow. And uh, drove down there. I applied for a job in January. My idea was to go down in May. Um, my wife was, my, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was already down there. And this was like the, I'm going to work. And I'm going to get some money saved up and then I'll be down. Well, I applied for a bunch of archaeology jobs, not expecting to get them because I had no experience in the field. And I got a job. I got a phone call on like a Thursday night and it was the, the principal investigator of this job. And she was like, so I need, a, so this is the project we're working on. I sent you an email. Did you get it? Yes. She's like, when can you be here? like don't you want to interview me and she's like yeah i read your resume when can you be here well uh tuesday and she's like project starts monday i'll accept tuesday see you then click <laughs> so that was the that was the load my truck that was the throw stuff into storage that was the you know get in the truck and just burn 
you know, burn tires all the way down there. And I got down there like Sunday night or Monday morning sometime. I really late, really early. It's still dark. I got outside of Buckeye, which is where I was going to be, where uh, my girlfriend lived at the time. And either my phone was dead or something. I slept in the Walmart parking lot. And then I pulled into the driveway, saw her, you know, hugs, kisses, you know, celebrate for a little bit. And the next morning I am out the door at 3.30 in the morning to drive 52 miles to the office (laughs) where I meet this crew of people that I've never met before. And they're like, good, get in the truck (laughs) (laughs) out to the job site. Um, But that was, uh, you know, I graduated and I started looking for a job in what's called cultural resource management, which is um, like like everyday archaeology. You know, the um, there's academic, which is, you know, the school is involved. You're the professor, you're excavating, you're excavating a site for academic purposes. Etc. and so forth, preservation purposes because of its significance, and it's all being run by a university. And then there's cultural resource management archaeology, which is the you're the people in front of the bulldozer, and you have 15 minutes to record what you're looking at before that bulldozer runs you over. I kid you not, that's how it is sometimes. Um, so any of these big projects, highway projects, in fact, the first job I worked was a highway project. Um, you have to have archaeologists go through and mitigate all the cultural sites. So that's anything. That's indigenous sites, that's historic sites with European Americans involved, that's rock art, that's, you know, anything that humans have touched. And if you consult with with, uh, one of the tribes and they say, this particular mountain has a bunch of cultural stories tied to it, yeah, you can't build a road on that mountain if they have their say. And that's something that we, okay, so that's how we can look at an area and actually how these projects kind of kind of get uh, they get planned out and then they they bid the job to get looked at and processed. Um, I've, I've, I've worked for companies where the research work is done by a different firm. And then the field work is done by somebody else and the curation work is done by somebody else because they all bid the contract just like any contract sort of position. Um, and that was that was on a website that was on an archaeology field work website you know and you submit your resume or your cv and uh you apply like anything else but it was an archaeology specific job board um and from then on once i was in i i knew a bunch of a bunch of uh i guess big players for the area you know people who ran their own pro- who who were in charge of projects who could actually have hiring authority um, one of the guys I worked with at, at the first, first job, he was, he was the boss that came driving out when that, that girl made a mistake for a completely different company. And he like left a month before I did because he got a better job opportunity. And so it, it became really more of a, I would see a job listing and then I would call the person that I already knew was working the job and say, Hey, do you, do you guys need more people? When's this project happening? Here's my resume. So kind of, you know, word of mouth more than anything, but once you get, I mean, once you get into a, into an area and you're knowledgeable about it, you're on a short list and, you know, 
Um, and then like government jobs, which is what I do now, you, you go on the government website and you type in archaeology and it'll bring up everything with that word involved. Um, there was a really terrible job I saw advertised. You have to spend the whole summer floating the Grand Canyon over and over and over again. Terrible. <laughs> hey, everything paid for by the job, you know. Oh, no. Camping in the Grand Canyon? Terrible. But because you were going to be there and you're going to be a park ranger, they want you to have some sort of archaeological knowledge. Okay, cool. Read a book on the indigenous people of the Grand Canyon, you're caught up. But, yeah, so uh, it's it's pretty easy if you want to go higher than just being a, 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 a field field person, you know, a, a field technician or a shovel bum, which is the colloquial term. Um, <laughs> you need to go higher in your education. You know, you need a master. Um, when you have a master's, you can get a permanent position, which means, like, if you work for a federal agency, you will be the one in the office who takes all of the work that's done by the field people and collate it into the reports and the records and all of that stuff. You'll be the one to talk to. You'll be the person to talk to about projects um, like the agency I work for now. My boss sits at the table every year during the, the public land use uh, conversations with the people who work in the forestry department and the fisheries people and the wildlife biology people. And they all come together with this big game plan on land use that looks at every aspect of land, of land management, you know? So it, 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 you can get out of the field and get into an office really quick if your education's high enough. And then if you want to teach, you can do adjunct positions. I think with an MA, it depends on the school. Um, but you would need a PhD to be a professor. So that might be in the works. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. So what's a, what's a typical day in the life for you then out in the field? Well, when I'm going out in the field, uh, it's, it's wake up and do the, uh, the all important morning ritual, <laughs> making coffee. So I don't kill the first person at the gas station <laughs> <laughs> who's in the way of a churro, you know, I mean, just, um, you know, it's, it, you, uh, d depending on the project, I mean, uh, sometimes you camp, sometimes you're already out there on the project, but usually it's, um, when you get to the office, you, uh, you see what the day plan is. And usually if, if it's an excavation project, you just go out and you, where you're assigned and you start digging and you're keeping all your own notes and, you know, you have X amount of supplies to bag artifacts and everything. And um, like when I was working in Arizona, there was there was a person with a GPS and he had the stick, he had the wizard staff and the GPS and he would come and he would plot everything on the site in addition to measuring out every single wall, every single, you know, he'd walk the perimeter of what we were considering the site, which is just just looks like an amoeba when you put it on a map. And then you have specifically somebody who's entering all of this handwritten data into a tablet or a laptop. And then you have somebody who's specifically cataloging all of the artifact numbers and assigning new artifact numbers. So I would be in a, I was excavating a room in this Pueblo complex for eight feet by seven feet, you know, not a very big room. 
but I, I went through, you know, 1,050 to 2,500 and then 3,501 to, you know, 3,570 in regards to numbers in that same hole in the ground because somebody else would get the next segment of numbers because they got done before I did or, you know, and there's somebody making sure that all of that data that ties the artifacts I found to room F stay within that room in the digital record. So you have somebody specifically doing that. I work for the feds, which means, oh, I can do all of that myself. So I've got a GPS. So I've got the tablet. <laughs> and it, it bounces between everybody on the crew. You know, I mean, somebody, if it's a Monday, Kyle gets the camera. And the photo log. Kyle, if you don't take good pictures, you're fired. <laughs> you, you know, they get the picture. They get to take pictures for the day. Somebody else will be doing the GPS stuff. Everybody's taking notes. Um, and then at some point, you'll collate all that in the office. But we're usually out the door on the road as the sun's coming up. And we'll get out to the field. Sometimes it's a 10-minute drive. Sometimes it's an hour and a half drive. Um Sometimes you're only going 10 miles, but it's an hour and a half drive because the road's that bad. <laughs> you know, be glad it's not your truck and it's the office truck right. kind of thing. <laughs> um, and then we'll we'll survey areas based on what the project needs are. Uh, timber sales. You know, if there's stuff on the ground that the machines can ruin, we got to make sure the machines won't run over them. Mark them out uh, and assess kind of what we're doing while in the field. If we think we should excavate something, we'll say, hey, it might be worth putting a test pit here to see what it'll turn up. Because um, you get into a lot of these areas and the, the underbrush is, you know, so dense. We, uh, in, in our office, it's you have to do 10% is considered good faith effort. And I've been in areas where the 10% is four feet off the road because you can't see any further because of the deadfall and i mean we've walked right up on full l and they stand up six feet in front of you and you're like where'd you come from they just appear from a hole in the ground no he was laying there you couldn't see him because he looked like a pile of, of brush you know uh you, you can't see anything you're not going to see an arrowhead or a plate that's that big right. in grass four and a half feet tall um now if we go through an area and we make sure you know, you can find a cabin in that. Okay, so that we found a cabin. It's it's been protected. We we've recorded everything, and the smoke jumpers go in and do a prescribed burn fire, and they save the cabin. But everything else has been cooked off pretty well. Then we go back in. Oh man, and it's amazing what we find. You know, uh, that that was never that you, you you would never have seen it. You could have stepped right in the middle of it. You never would have seen it until that underbrush is gone. And then, mm -hmm. Oh man, there's lots, there's lots more there. Um, but we record it. We, we try to leave everything in situ. We don't want to disturb it any more than we absolutely have to. And then uh, we go back to the office and upload everything. And as the season progresses, we'll start collating, you know, one or one office day a week will be turned into, an, into or work day a week will be turned into an office day where we have to start writing reports. We have to start turning the data we have into site forms and reports. 
So we can then come up with a protection plan or we can come up with a mitigation plan. Obviously we can't save everything. So these three things, yeah, the road can go through it because we have, we've seen all of it before. It's not that unique or, you know, it can't be helped. What do we have to do if it can't be helped? Go out and excavate it, you know, uh, record it as best we can, take all the artifacts with us, document them, curate them, put them in the repository. So a hundred years down the road, somebody can look at that box and go, oh, I wonder what's in there. And then try to look through our old notes and go, I don't know what this is. <laughs> Which is kind of a nightmare, but that's that's kind of what it is sometimes. So in the artifacts that you're finding, I mean, when you record them or if you save them, move them off site after all the, the data is taken, what happens to them from there? Is it going into a museum or some sort of... Um, a lot of them, no. Uh, they get... Uh, they get taken to a repository that's run by either a state agency or like a university. So like the University of Montana, Montana um, for a long time was a repository for artifacts that were dug up by the Forest Service and Department and, and like Bureau of Land Management and, and the Department of Natural Resources west of Butte. All of the artifacts they excavated would go to the repository at the University of Montana. And they would be, they're there for research. If you are a researcher, you can, and you get the proper permissions and credentials to go into the repository, you can go in and utilize those in your research. If, it, if, if it's one of the tribes, uh, they have the ability to, to, to utilize and access those things. Some of the things get used as teaching collections or as part of your internship or your your work study, you're doing, you know, they're being used as a teaching teaching tool in some fashion. Um, and then, like uh, sometimes, there's small museum displays at the university, you know, but they're not going to wind up in the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. If there's a museum in town that wants to have a display, wants to do an exhibit on artifacts of west of western montana mining mining artifacts of western montana they can approach the repository and present essentially the 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 plan of what they want the project plan and get artifacts on loan which has a huge paper trail that they have to they have to follow um and uh the, they'll be on display for x number of days or months or whatever and then they'll go back to the repository um sometimes it's it's uh it's like where the ark went in indiana jones you know it's a government building and they it's all on shelves it's all in a computer database somewhere and it just goes sits on the shelf right. and you never see it again but uh we can't take stuff home that's a no one you get in trouble for that um Everybody says that you guys are just collecting and selling it off and becoming rich off those artifacts. We can't do that. That's against the law. <laughs> and if you notice, I'm not rich. <laughs> Believe me, if, if there was a chance to breathe a little easier when it comes to bill time every month, right. <laughs> uh, I'd feel better about it. But no, no, we don't. So, so artifacts, if, they're, if they are extremely significant, to the indigenous groups in the area and they're in i mean graves grave goods uh those automatically go back to the tribe 
period, the end. We can't take pictures. You know, we can't take pictures of a barrier. Mm -hmm. The artifacts that are in a barrier, doesn't matter if the artifact is found and it's not in anybody's hand, it's not on the remains themselves. If it's in the hole with the, with the human remains, we can't even take pictures of it. I, ha I have beautiful memories of, of uh, arrowheads that were obsidian, but they were so thin, you couldn't tell that it was obsidian, hardly. It was, it was the faintest smoky color of black in it. They're all, they were all made specifically, I mean, I don't know what you would use this for to hunt. They were, they were the size of my thumbnail. Mm -hmm. But they were a grave good. Couldn't take pictures of um, all that stuff goes back to the goes back to the tribes, um, unless the tribe says, "Hey, we understand that this is actually important to our own knowledge and learning about our past, which of course has been so disrupted in the last 250 years, uh, where pictures were are allowed to be taken or more work is allowed to be done." Um, but usually, at least in my experience, if you find a, a burial, you've got 24 hours to get it out of the ground, recorded out of the ground. You can't use anything non or unnatural. So you can't use ink. You can't use plastic. You can't use tape or staples. It's paper and linen and, and like hemp twine and for packaging everything up. And it, it goes, goes right back to the tribe for, for uh, reburial. Um, historic artifacts, uh, a lot of the times we leave them there. Um, if we have to excavate a historic site, uh, we pick and choose because uh, it's a bit of a nightmare when you find a can dump and there's 5,000 tin cans that are the same tin cans today as they were in 1875 and you don't need another 2,000 bean tins in a box somewhere, they'll <laughs> leave them. But if you find one really cool bottle or some pretty distinctive ceramic or something that's unique in what you're looking at, oh, this is actual actual Japanese porcelain, actual or, or Chinese porcelain, actually hand painted, and this this piece has survived with just a crack in it. That'll get collected because of its its significance. It might be the only. Um. But yeah, no, we don't sell them. We can't actually, we can't just get rid of, we can't throw stuff away. And there's a funny story about that that I can tell you if you yeah. want to hear it. It's ridiculous. Um, when I was doing my undergrad and we're working in the repository, we started looking at a bunch of field school excavations. So the notebooks, the, you know, the site forms, and all of the artifacts, which had literally been dug up out of the ground, they brushed some of the dirt off, and they said, this is cool. They put it in a paper bag, and they put it in a box. And the paper bags maybe had the site number written on them. And they were the only thing we knew about them is that they were from 1988, this field school that was done in 1988, at Garnet Ghost Town. And that's all we knew. Didn't know which <laughs> building, didn't know which... You know, where on this, where in the town site was this from? How deep was it? All of that pro provenience data. There's that word again. <laughs> um, I know we're going to get to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, all this data that I'm very, very used to collecting wasn't there. 
Wonderful. Well, as we're going through, there's like 10 or 11 boxes. And then there was this last box that didn't have any writing on it, but it had been curated as a box of artifacts. So we open it up and it is the lunch trash <laughs> from a week of field school lunches from 1988. <laughs> you know, those little packages with the cheese and the, and the breadsticks. Yeah. That packaging hasn't changed at all. <laughs> <laughs> and we're looking at it. Oh, great. This is all trash. It's literally trash. What are we going to do with it? Bag it and tag it. You mean we can't throw it away? Fire him. (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't throw it away. So what we have to do is not collect it. So there'll be stuff that, you know, we're we're just not going to go, we're not going to collect it. But we can't sell it. When we have it, we can't dispose of it. It's, It's on the shelf for the rest of existence. So until it becomes an artifact again. <laughs> you know, a thousand years from now. But yeah, um you know the 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 selling of artifacts is is a, is pop culture Indiana Jones old old archaeology. You know, the the field has changed progressively as you go through um I think the big story the most recent one that I know of and I'm sure other people heard of uh was it Nick Cage bought a T-Rex skull and turned out it was stolen from whatever collection or something like that. Oh, it's not just Nick Cage. Um, So being a T-Rex skull, that's, that's a good distance outside of my wheelhouse Mm -hmm. with the dinosaur. Archaeologists (laughs) don't think of dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) Just, just a bit. But like um, there was a, there was a guy, do do you remember Forrest Fenn? Did you ever hear him? Not off the top of my head it might be in the recesses of my mind somewhere but um forest fenn was this guy for this this collector slash oil guy or something he had a lot of money in new mexico and he he found out he had terminal cancer in the early 90s and he decided he was going to take a bunch of his wealth and he was going to encourage people to explore so he made a treasure map or he made a treasure and he buried it somewhere and then he released it was first eight clues and then he released another clue after 10 years because nobody found it then he released another one so there were 10 clues and flat out in his in in his in his the 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 little blurb the little poem he wrote it's not in a well it's not in a cemetery it's not under somebody's house and 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 he he made it, he put it on public land somewhere. It was found, I don't know where, I, I want to say in Colorado, but I mean, I, I have no idea where. But in that search, people were going off base and digging where they weren't supposed to. And there's actually a guy who last year got busted because not only was he digging on federal land, he was digging a, 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 a military cemetery <laughs> outside of Yellowstone. So, like, the guys buried there are old cavalry horse guys. You know what I mean? They're, this is an old site. And he was, he caused a bunch of damage to the graves. He took a bunch of stuff. Oh, look at this metal. I'm, I'm out metal detecting what I find. Old belt buckle. 
it was around some trooper's waist, but you know, I mean, who cares? You know, he's not going to mess it, obviously. But uh, he got in a lot of trouble, and and he was in violation of the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, the ARPA Act, and the 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 more people have gone out especially last year with COVID and people thinking the only place to be safe is away from other people. So we're going to go out in the woods. Those ARPA cases are piling up because it also, I mean, it's, you know, digging archeological sites that are discovered and known about. Um, there was a cave complex in uh, Utah that in the sixties, I think the archeologists excavating were like, this is so important we need to stop. So they put a they put a, a cast iron grate over the hole. You could not get in. Somebody went in and cut the bars and looted that site down to sterile soil, destroyed it completely. And it was eleven thousand something years old. It was ancient, ancient. Baskets in place. Took it all. Why? You know. Because somebody actually why we paid, can't have nice things. <laughs> this is exactly why. But you know, because somewhere somebody paid money for something, right? And has now set a precedent, you know. And that's unfortunately, you know, early on, you know, uh, one of the things about archaeology is that it's very colonial, and there's lots of people that say, that'll say specifically that it's a, a tool of colonialism. Well, the first arch- recorded archaeologist is Nabonidus II who's a, a, a pre-Persian king. He's like a, a Babylonian king. <laughs> because there was a fascination back then, 3,300 years ago, with what came before. Mm-hmm. So he's the first recorded archaeologist. And for a, a lot of the time, and I mean, granted, you know, the European powers did accordingly take stuff away. The, the only glimmer of anything in what they did is the fact that a lot of areas where they did take stuff and have seen a lot of strife and like with with uh, the like the giant Buddhas in Iran that were dynamited by the Taliban or ISIS or something because of you know idol worship or whatever mm-hmm. they thought is it at, at the very least there's a small picture when the British went in and excavated all these places and like, Oh, this is great stuff. We're going to take it back to the museum and put it on display. No one here is going to care because if they cared, they would have done it themselves, whatever that mindset is. But that used to be, you know, early, you know, in the eight, in the 1800s and early nine, you know, early 1900s. Yeah. That's what people did. There's archeology span and then there's Indiana Jones. And that, Indiana Jones is the only one that people see because that was adventure. That was big. That was, you know, kids listen to stories like that on the radio during the depression. That was, that was a hero thing. And then we have the movies. When did the first one get made? The early eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it goes from the radio, you know, from the radio shows to, to those and it's just the same vein as the pulp the pulp novels and radio serials that really got everybody razzed up and it's great entertainment but unfortunately there's a lot of people who can't make the distinction between entertainment and real reality 
Obviously, they got their idea from something, so it's got to come from something. Well, Indiana Jones takes place in the in the 30s, and then the last one we don't like takes place in the 40s. That that emulates that time period, but it's not it's not what we do today. So, yeah, <laughs> somewhere somebody thought it was okay, um, and that's why, like I I've called like you, you've been watching my TikToks. I've called some people out that. I've done naughty things. I, I, yeah, I've seen people. I'm just out and about, and I have a metal detector, so it's and I'm oh, yeah. on public land, so it's okay. Well, actually, <laughs> actually, it's not. It's not as okay as everybody thinks. And you'll get people who will argue that, oh, it's public land. Why? Why can people tell us what to do on public land if it's public land? And that's literally the, well, if you ruin it for everybody, right. it stops being public land. It stops, you know, one person stole a cookie out of the cookie jar. Everybody in the classroom is now in trouble. So, uh, but yeah, there have been, a, you know, uh, I actually ran into a guy at, at Garnet Ghost Town one day and he's sitting in his truck and his buddy's walking around the town and in the back of their truck is metal detectors and shovels and screens. And I know exactly what they're doing because guess what? On projects, we've used metal detectors and shovels and screens <laughs> because you know, we're looking for specifically historic things and yeah, we'll get a ping. And then if we excavate it, we excavate it like we do in a meter by meter square down increments, 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 and excavate it properly to taking all of that data collection that we do and that people don't realize that we do. And this guy was sitting there and he's looking really suspicious. And I walk up to him and you know, I'm in a truck with government plates. So it's like, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. I'm like, you got metal detectors in the back, and there's a sign right there. You say, you can't metal detect. Oh, they're just back there. I'm like, this is like having a loaded rifle in a zoo. <laughs> I'm not doing nothing, but I'm, Great. but that gazelle's looking mighty tasty. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, I just, I mean, yeah, unfortunately. Um, and I've had people on, on TikTok send me things, send me videos where people are pulling artifacts out of the bank, out of the water. And I can, I can go on about it until I'm blue in the face, but I don't know where those places are because not every state is the same. Federal, federal land is the same, regardless where you are. But like I know in Missouri, I think you can walk river channels and, and water and flowing water channels and pick up artifacts, but you can't in Virginia or Montana or, you know, and if you're on public land, or not public land, but private land, and you pick up artifacts, the private landowner can send you to jail for theft, unless you have permission, you know. And are people getting permission? Where are they at so I can check the laws? Oh, suddenly they're in a state that allows it, you know. It's like, you know, oh, I didn't know, except for these laws have been around for a long time. So it's, it's, it, there, there's a, there's an avenue of I didn't know because it never entered into my head and I saw one of these TV shows that made it look like it was okay. I'll, I'll give that a little bit. But someone who's actually good, but expert in the field, somebody's been doing it years and years, yeah, they know. They know. You have to learn about it to get good. Right. <laughs> so for if you know, for me, I you know, I did that shotgun tour of several national parks and there's a couple times where I accidentally fell off the 
the uh, actual path and went ended up down the game trail. Now, see, I'm doing that, and I stumble across, you know, something more than just an arrowhead because those are a dime a dozen. But it's something that looks like a legitimate artifact. I mean, is there a one eight hundred number you call, or do you just go to the nearest ranger station and be like, "Hey, I found this here. We're checking out." Uh, yeah. Um, well, don't take it with you. Obviously. Right. Right. <laughs> but um, what I suggest for people to do is contact the land agency. You know, if you're if you're in Nevada, which is all Bureau of Land Management, ninety nine point nine percent of it. If you are out there and you find something, call the nearest. Uh, office they'll have a they'll have a a technician or an archaeologist on staff specifically to do that take a picture of it take a gps point of it um and send it to them and say hey this is here it's worth checking out and the person in the office will make that decision and then oh if it's just an arrowhead it's just an arrowhead they'll put a pin in it and they might come back to it they might not but i've seen people who have sent in pictures and it's a, it's an arrowhead. It's that long. It's bigger than arrow. <laughs> Holy crap. They, they send people out and it's, you know, they're right there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of these sites where human remains have been discovered, you know, there was, you know, people, people called the sheriff. I remember there was an incident uh, near Roundup, Montana on the muscle shell. Uh, some fishermen found, a couple of bones, including a, a, a skull. They called the sheriff. The sheriff come out and took all the bones out of the bank and all right, took them into the lab and she the the, the teeth didn't match anybody and it was it was old the mystery woman of the muscle shell and and then a, a anthropologist from the state crime lab came in and did some tinkering and was like, where'd you find her? And they brought him out to the site, and he looked at it, and he took some samples of the dirt, and he measured the stratigraphy. She'd only been there 5,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was one of those, you know, um, the site had been really irreparably damaged because law enforcement didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. They were excavating a bear. They were excavating a body. Um, but, you know, that was one of those instances where somebody found something called the authorities, the authorities came, and it eventually got to where it was going, to where it needed to go. Um, but yeah, if you're in the woods and you're, you're hiking and you find something, call the, call the land agency. And if they know about it, all, all, all you've done is wasted a couple minutes um, of, of time letting them know. Yeah, no harm, no that's, harm. That's really, that's really not, off, not, a, not any skin off of anybody's nose to do that. Um, and again, if you're on, if you're on, uh, private land, you know, duck hunting or whatever, um, clear with the landowner because it'd be really unfortunate to find some, find an artifact on private land and keep it. And then the next time you talk to the landowner, he's like, oh yeah, you know, there's some stuff coming down from the hill where the old family cemetery is, you know what I mean? Did you take great, great granny's? diamond ring home with you i mean (laughs) so um but yeah those the 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 regulations are easy to find you know all the 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 state agencies have them the government agencies have them uh just hop online and see what they are some places allow allow artifact collecting from what i understand um 
I more see it with fossils. People ask me about fossil collecting and everything, even though fossils are not my deal. Um, but, uh, you know, like, like in Montana on, on Bureau of Land Management, I think the Forest Service is the same way. You can pick up 25 pounds of fossils, but they can't have a spine. They can't be vertebrate fossils. Probably something to do with the, the Tyrannosaurus Sioux and that big hubbub where they're like, we don't want to have somebody pick up something, sell it for lots of money, a whole bunch of other people go, oh my, and run out there and proceed to destroy everything in some new gold rush to get rich off of fossils or or whiskey bottles. You know, people have been sending me the, the videos of the guy who has the town in Nevada. Um, oh, he's digging up whiskey bottles. Okay, well, he can't. It's his property. I can't. I, I can say that he's he's destroying an archaeological site, but it's his to destroy. But when, but it's, you know, when people come up to where I work at, you know, when I was working at Garnet Ghost Town, I had people say, hey, I watched this guy on YouTube. Can I do this here? And I'm like, no, you know, you cannot. And then they can, then some of them were like, oh, I didn't know. And I point to the sign and I give them a little lecture. And then there's some people that uh, it's, it's like I spit in their Cheerios. Oh, you're pissed. <laughs> And it's like, well, what do you want me to do? I don't make the rules. I just stand here and, well, I can't look pretty, so I just stand here. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, definitely. So I was reading um, Steve Brunella's American Bison. He goes in. Have you read that by chance? No, I haven't. It's I a, it's a cool, it's a story about him going on a bison hunt, but he injects a uh, boatload of history around the North American buffalo and all the subspecies and everything and how they blah blah blah. Anyway, but the point is, I remember there's a brief part in there where he talked about he came across a buffalo skull, and if it's from this time period to this time period, you're allowed to keep it. But if it's older than that, it's not legal to keep it. Yeah, well, 50 years old and older yeah. is what's considered historic in the states. Um, it it. It really depends on where you go, you know, where in the world you go. I know um, it, you go like you go to you go to Great Britain, the UK and 50 years old, unless it's involved in the war, they laugh at you. Yeah, that's, that's not I mean, I, I had I had a lady uh, up there and I was very proud of the fact that a couple of our buildings are 132 years old and are still square, you know, still live in them. They're great. And she was like, oh, I I live in a house that was built in 1632. And I'm like, oh, get back to England. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I understand that we can be proud of something that we have here that's not as old as the rest of the world. Now, if I had that same conversation with that same woman, yet we're in the Southwest in the Phoenix Basin at, the, at Pueblo Grande, it, it, it'd be one of those. Okay, stop being, stop being difficult. This this is older than your place by a thousand years. You know? <laughs> um, which, if you ever get down there, I strongly recommend that museum there uh, in Phoenix, Pueblo Grande. I'm trying to think where we went. So my family down in Fountain Hills area, and okay. I know we went up to. Is it Sedona? Yeah. And with the couple, crystals. 
Uh, yeah, I think so. And then we went to a couple ghost towns, and I we checked out the uh, uh, fossilized dinosaur tracks and old river basin mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, uh, near Tuba City. Somebody yeah. asked me about that because apparently there's human footprints there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Not yeah. from how many tourists go through there every year, of course. Oh no! For millions and millions of years ago, proves yeah. dinosaurs and humans walked together. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and assume you don't subscribe to the world is only 6,000 years theory. No, no, I don't. You know, um, as, as, as much as I try to be respectful of of anybody's belief system, I I don't care if it brings you comfort. Perfect. The moment you start making it everybody else's problem or, Everybody else has to suddenly believe what you believe. That's when there's an issue. So, I, I mean, and unfortunately, the young Earth creationist bunch are, are the ones that have gotten in my face and screamed at me. I'm like, that that's going to get you that far. You know. It's funny. I mean, a group of friends were kind of a walking bar joke because we, I, I'm Christian, but I'm not the, if you don't believe what I believe, then you're wrong type. I'm more of the, you do you and I do me and we'll sort it out later. But I have friends, yeah. you know, an atheist, a heathen, and a Christian walk into a bar. <laughs> I've heard that joke. Yeah. <laughs> I am that joke. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I've, I've known a lot of people who are very strong in their faith system, regardless of what it is. And I'm like, that's perfect. Um, we're we're very small and i don't think we have a single idea what really is going on yeah, so yeah. why worry about it <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean try to try to be decent to folk and not live a good life but right. i mean so yeah I, I i'm excited because i got accepted into a norse slash celtic pagan clan as the okay. friar tuck title so nice. I'm just going to go there, brew beer, figure out mead, and just have a jolly good time. <laughs> what, what a terrible, terrible life, sir. Right. Oh. <laughs> Here's a short period. You better walk off right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, yeah, that sounds awesome. That'd be great. And, uh, we, so we, Making we, beer and mead. Right. I know. It's a rough life, but I guess somebody. There's an archaeology of that. No kidding. Archaeology of alcohol. Did you not? Yeah, uh, yeah, kind of. Um, oh, what brewery did it? Ninkasi. No, uh, there's a um, out of Michigan. Is it? Oh, oh no. Um, kind of, they do the two hearted. No, not not those. Uh, I can't remember who. Anyway, Sam something is the owner. They just okay. merged with Sam Adams a couple of years ago. I'm trying to blank out. Anyway, but they did the ancient ale series and they dug up okay. some old. Egyptian and Persian and whatever recipes from thousands of years ago and try to recreate it with, with cool. modern technology and everything. And it, it was a mixed bag of results. Um, sure. Um, have you heard of Ninkasi Brewing out of Oregon? No. Uh, they were a brewery, I can't remember when they started, late 90s, I think. But um, their first beer was from a recipe written in cuneiform that was found in in like Ur, the city of Ur in Iraq. Okay. And it was a it's it was like a honey beer or something <laughs> like that. And the goddess of brewing from the Middle East is Minkasi. Um 
if I'm remembering that right. Watch, I'm completely off wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but that that's I think where they got their their start. Sure. And uh, was was recreating this old Persian, what we would call beer. They might not call it that. Yeah. Um, so it was beer came out of the Middle East and then up in the the northern Europe, so Scandinavian area was the Medes. Yep. I remember the history. Yep. Right? And, um, because the only local. sugar you could get up there was honey. Right. Easily. Uh, there's a brewery here that did a, um, it's called a Brack, and it's like a hybrid between mead and beer. I think it's called a Brack, I'm pretty sure. I'm probably butchering that. So okay. Gonna yell at me. But a it's, Brack or a Lambic? No, Lambic is Belgian. Belgium. Okay. And that okay. has to be called a Lambic or to be classified as a Lambic has to come out of Lambic Valley. That's Belgium. Okay. Similar okay. to, uh, you know, tequila comes out of, uh, is only in the, you know, made in Mexico sure. kind of deal. Um, but anyway, it's like, it's kind of mid-Europe where this, you know, the people coming off out of the spice trade would bring up their, their meat or, or um, ales and such. And people are like, oh, we have this mead. Try it. Yeah, there you I'll go. I'll trade you the years for mine, and and somehow or another, at some point, you know, you got the, this hybrid, and it was pretty cool to have. That's cool. Yeah. Have you ever had that beer that's made uh, in Belgium by the monks, and they only yes. brew yeah. like? How's that? Because I've I've heard about it so many times, and I'm just like, so it's I, a, I never get a chance. Shameless plug for uh, another show out of the studio called Homebrew Bound. They're actually doing a uh, reading of Brew Like a Monk. And they're talking about the, um, well, what's the, what's the style of beer that they do? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll think of it later. Um, but yeah, there's a few breweries in Bel- in Belgium and across the United States of this particular type. And they they have limited how much they can actually make each year. Mm-hmm. And they don't do a lot that gets over to the United States because the people on the secondary market like to jack price up through the roof and... Oh yeah. There's one brewery in particular. They did a four bottle set where I think it was only fifty bucks. And they're like, please do not break this up. It's meant to be paired with one another. And of course people yep. broke it up and some guy sold one of the bottles for upwards of nine thousand dollars, I think Brian said on the show. It's just it's like this I'll, is why I'll drink water from a hose first. <laughs> Jesus, nine grand, huh? But I, I can get Orval out, so I'm just a uh, stone's throw from Minnesota in the Twin Cities, and they have okay. a nice beer market. And Orval comes into town every once in a while, and it's nice. I'd like to get over to Belgium sometime, and in particular, I'd like to go to Campion. It's oh, yeah, 50 year old brewery still being made the way it was 150 years mm-hmm. ago, it's six generations of the same family, and it's a, yeah. It's not broke, don't fix it. Exactly. No, I've I have a uh, you know, I've really I've actually really curbed my beer consumption. I discovered that I just got to a point where I it it wasn't agreeing with me. Mm-hmm. But I still I still on occasion partake in Missoula where I live. I think there's sixteen breweries. <laughs> it's college town, so that might right. be why, but like there's 16 breweries, two or three cider houses, a uh, couple of wineries, um, and then three or four distilleries. We we we, we like our <laughs> our drink here. I have to but, come um, to Wisconsin. <laughs> I've been to Wisconsin. 
We know Oshkosh. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, you know, that was the first trip I took east of eastern Montana mm-hmm. in my entire life was Oshkosh. I won an art contest in high school. No kidding. And I got to do a, a two week, essentially like aviation summer camp there at Oshkosh and got to the first week I was, you know, was, was learning to fly and classes. And, and then the second week was the first week of air venture. I think it was 2000. So yeah, that was, that was really cool. How many to go off the rails a little bit here? How many cookie jars do you have your hands in? Because you know, so husband, father, anthropologist, airplane enthusiast. I saw it. Did you get your pilot's license? Mm-hmm. Yep. And car enthusiast. Yep. And now yeah, I'm a gearhead. Dabble in art a little bit too. Um, well, I used and to. Scotch. I and Scotch. Well, actually, right now it's not Scotch. It's um, it's rye whiskey, Tenth Mountain, sure. out of Colorado. Um, uh, Disjointed David on TikTok sent me this. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were talking. We were sending messages back and forth one day, and I, I, I said something of like, I had like one shot of whiskey left, and he's like, "That's terrible." I'm like, "I know. Tell me God." <laughs> and then, and then he sends me a message like. So I need your real address. I'm like, okay. I mean, I mean, he's he's one of the he he seems like one of the most mellow, chilled out guys I've ever I would ever have the pleasure of meeting. So I'm like, what's he gonna send me? A box of tribbles. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? So anyway, this bottle shows up. It's pretty damn good. Um, but yeah, I've got a bottle of. Old What's faithful this? for me, bullet bourbon. Nothing too crazy. Okay. Yeah. It's consistent. I've got a bottle of Ardbeg in the in the house in the, in the cupboard there, and I don't know if you've had that, but no. I, so you mentioned that you like PD Scotch, and I do. I do not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ardbeg is. You can taste the bog bodies. <laughs> <laughs> That's I should I really should make that a shirt. I really should make. A <laughs> I was joking with some friends today and uh, uh, on Pete, and I said, the only thing Pete should be used for is heating your house. And he goes, well, don't tell the Irish that. I go, just because they're wrong and they happen to use their, their grain as a as an insulation source and later on decide to distill it does not mean it makes a good drink. <laughs> well, the Scotch are the ones who invented Scotch. Yes, yes. Yeah, my body um, is a Pochine. Of Lagavulin. Yeah, Lagavulin's good. Um, and my my boss is a Scotchman, and and we'll we'll do uh, like the end of the year lunches, and she'll always have she'll either have, either have Ardbeg or Lagavulin as a salute to us for getting a, for a good good season. Um, but yeah, no, uh, I do I do like Scotch. Um, I like dark beers when I have them. Um, there's a, there's a couple, you know, the, our multitude of breweries, uh, there's a place called Kettle House and they make one called, um, Cold Smoke, which is a Scotch ale. Mm-hmm. And the best way to describe it is Guinness Light. <laughs> it, it, it kind of has that, that weight, but it's not heavy mm-hmm. and that density of flavor, but it's not a meal. It's a beer <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to Guinness, which is a meal or three. Yeah, so I have two uh, speeds. I either go for the old school West Coast where it's just pine salt and paint thinner bitterness, 
or the IPA double, you know, double ABV uh, uh, stouts and porters. And if it's barrel aged, better, better for me. So yeah. Got myself in a little bit of trouble out in Colorado. Uh, walked into the Great Divide at their downtown location. Mm-hmm. And I go, hey, do you do flights? And she goes, perfect. Yeah, what you do? I'm like, good. Uh, I'll take all of them. She looks at me like, are you nuts? Because they had a barrel-aged menu and then the regular menu. I'm like, yeah, I'll take one of everything you have up there. And she's like staring at me trying to compute this. And I'm from Wisconsin. This is normal for us. <laughs> <laughs> How quick did you regret that one? <laughs> uh, not until about three in the morning when I had to call my friend that was 45 miles away come get me. <laughs> oh, there you go. I hear I hear Colorado does have a really good beer scene. Yeah, it does. Uh, Denver. Uh, so we were staying south west of denver and a little ski resort town for a wedding and get a few breweries there and then stumbled up into denver and get out of the car cool. and there's dispensary distillery brewery <laughs> what could go wrong <laughs> where's the cookie store right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's one of the things montana i think just legalized the hair yeah i saw that um until well our our governor also is uh He's he's one of the dinosaur Jesus people, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, I I don't know how far that that legalization is going to get with him and in the sea. I, I I open the news, I see the news, and then I shut it off because I can't stand the look on the guy's face, let alone hear what he did. I, I listen to uh, a podcast on a whitefish, and so I get kind of the, some of the wave tops. Okay, your local news, so cleared hot. Yeah. Andy Stump, if you get a chance to check them out. Okay, I'll throw that down. Yeah, um, yeah, whitefish is a cool little town. It's uh, yeah. my grandma lives up in Kalispell. Actually, most of my dad's side of the family lives up there. So yeah, I got a buddy so, in yeah. Kalispell, and might have to stumble out there. I'd like, well, I'm planning on going with a few friends, Montana, Colorado, Utah, for elk hunts, and I'm just going to go photograph the whole adventure. Really? Well, you should let me know when you're out this time. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I go elk hunt, too. I just don't photo on <laughs> Well, uh, to quote my buddy who was a staff sergeant, sergeant E5 or E6 in the Marine Corps, and the range instructor for his last year in California, after two or three days of trying to teach me how to shoot accurately, he goes, you could miss the broadside of a barn if you were standing in it. <laughs> there you go. Oh. <laughs> I, I know some people like that. <laughs> I got two bullet holes in that green Dodge pickup. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of cars, I, I saw, was it yesterday or a couple days ago, you got your, was it your aunt's car originally that somebody was an idiot and rattle can? Oh, yeah. Um, I've actually had that car about two years now but you it'll be it. two years did you just get running is that what I said? no okay so <laughs> so it's it's been a it's been an up and down um that car uh the quick and dirty version that i that i did on tiktok was pretty much the this, this story my aunt uh got divorced from her first husband that was her car I mean, I'm pretty sure he bought it from the first owner for her. She drove to my grandmother's house and parked it. And she started going to school at the University for Pharmacy in, well, 87. And my grandparents, I guess, helped buy her a little, like, Ford Escort or something. And that car sat in the backyard and never moved. 
And I remember I was like 10 or 11 and I got Shanghai into climbing around inside and taping up newspaper around the glass to protect the interior in like 93, 93. My grandfather was still alive, so before 95. And the car sat there and it was, it was just a big boat car. And as I, I mean, this, it was one of these, it was this car and my mother's 1968 D200 Dodge pickup with wide block 318 and automatic in the dash were these two classic cars that were in my life and I never paid attention to them because I was, I was an idiot. Um, when, I, when I first got my driver's license, it was a 79 Dodge Power Wagon made of rust and, and, and dents. It was in terrible condition. My dad bought it for like 200 bucks from a veterinarian over near Drummond who it was his, it was his like go out and euthanize cattle truck. It was, it was, this, it was the, the floors were made out of somebody's hood. It was in bad shape and he bought it and I got to play with it on my grandfather's ranch for a little bit and the oil line blew and it died. And then my grand, my parents helped me buy this 87 Dodge truck that I had. Meanwhile, I, for, I didn't pay attention because it was not my style to this beautiful old Dodge pickup or this two-door V8 muscle car that was sitting at my grandmother's house. And it, it, just, it just never occurred to me. Plus, it was a Ford, and I didn't like Fords. I had that. I don't want to touch a Ford, you know. Even though my dad's owned Fords and he's owned Chevys. No, my dad, when I first started paying attention to cars, my dad bought a brand new Dodge, the last of the square bodies, Cummins Turbo Diesel. So that was like the pinnacle of what I wanted because I wanted to be like my dad. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, that, that car sat at my grandmother's house and it was just there. And we have family things. My grandfather passed away. And it was always there. We, it just was there. And then my grandmother, after years of living by herself, moved to Kalispell because her daughters lived in Kalispell and he, she wanted to be close to them. So she kept her house in the Rattlesnake and rented it out. And while she, the people that she was renting it to were the parents of this kid who wanted the car. In a completely different tangent of my life, I become, because I was working at O'Reilly Auto Parts at the time, as a, as a, as a, as a parts runner, I meet and become really good friends with this kid named Justin, who's my age, and his dad, who's like a second dad, who have this little shop in Missoula. It's not there anymore, but a uh, little mechanic shop. And wouldn't you know it, Justin's best friend from high school is this kid who wants the car. <laughs> There's the connection. So at my wedding in 2015, Ryan finally talks to my aunt like face-to-face, -face, and they hash out the car. And she says, fine, I'll sell it to you. On payments, and uh, when, you, when it's paid off, you get the title. Perfect. So Ryan gets the keys. I guess the keys were in it. And he tells me about it, and I say, good, this is your deal. I'm not involved. Your deal. You know, I don't want to hear anything about it. Because, again, I just wasn't interested in the car. It's a two-door or Galaxy, and I never had this idea in my head that they were cool muscle cars. Um, 
anyway, uh, long story short, I get married. I go back down to Arizona for a couple of years. I come back, and my dad asked me, when is Ryan going to pay my aunt for that call? Shoot. So I go, I talk to Ryan. He, of course, says, oh, no, I paid for it. I couldn't get the title from him, so I, I end up selling it. Okay. So I talk to my aunt. My aunt's like, I'd like to get paid for the car. Yeah, he only ever sent me 25 bucks, and I thought, for, I thought that he had bought it from her for $1,500, which is a hell of a deal for a two-door muscle car. 1970 Come on. No, $500. And he didn't pay her for it. And I was just like, if I go see this kid, I'm going to strangle him with his own belt. So, no. <laughs> so I, I go, I, I, I decide I want to know what happened to the car. I knew through either Justin or Ryan that someone in Sealy Lake had bought it. So I put up on Craigslist looking for this car in Sealy Lake. And the guy from Clearwater Towing had it. And he's like, I have this car. You better come look at it. Because I don't know if it's your aunt's car. You might want to check. All right, cool. And I drive all the way up there, brought my daughter because she wanted to go on an adventure. So get out of the house, let mom have some quiet time. And we get up there and I, I, I walk in. I know the girl who's working the counter. Again, one of these people I knew um through through justin and brett at the auto shop talk with her for a minute oh yeah bob said i can come with the car oh right she walks me out back and there's the car and it's black <laughs> it was red you open the door oh yeah it was red but the license plates were still on the original 1987 license plates were still on and that's how i knew it was her car so i i called i I called Bob. I said, yeah, it's my aunt's car. How much you want for it? He's like, a thousand bucks. So, so I drove it on the trailer. He didn't know what was wrong with it, but I drove it on the trailer with uh, barely running. It did not want to run. Uh, carburetor was all jacked up and, and I was running it off of gas cans strapped to the strapped to the grill, just like they do on roadkill because <laughs> roadkill is just baking a cake on YouTube for car people. <laughs> If you've ever watched it, it's hilarious. Um, <clears throat> so I get it up on the on the trailer and I bring it home. And I put a gas tank in it because I had a hole in the gas tank. I put a carburetor on it because you need a carburetor. And the car runs amazing. I did tune-up. That was it. And then I've been taking the paint off, the black rattle can paint. And you can tell how much, this, how much beer this guy was drinking. <laughs> because there's about seven coats on the front part of the car. And then you get about to the middle of the door... And it starts to thin because I was able from the middle of the door back, I was just able to give it a little douse of brake cleaner and the paint sloughed off. So now I've got this rat rod looking muscle car. And um, my aunt got me the title, which is in my uncle's name, her ex's name. And he signed it in 2014 to transfer it to her, like officially, you know, whatever. Whoops whatever you know however their 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 relationship after their marriage was whatever uh not my business but um she uh she sends me the title and he signed it without a notary so the title's junk all right cool so i get a hold of him and this is at the b this is i first have to get a hold of my cousin hey can i have your dad's phone number because i haven't talked to your dad in 25 years you know, I mean, I couldn't drive last time I saw Steve, you know, so I, I get a hold of him. He says, yeah, come on out. 
Six months later, I managed to drive 75 miles to go see him. And I get the car, or I get the title, I get him to sign the paperwork. And, uh, oh, yeah, just let me know when the car's ready. I won't, I won't come see it. Cool. And I come home, and I go to work for the rest of the week. And wouldn't you know it, that paperwork disappeared. So I look all over the house. I actually found the paperwork about a month and a half ago, and I sent it in the moment I found it. $10. Need, need my replacement title, please. So I still actually, when it shows up, have to drive to Phillipsburg to have to sign it again. So anyway, the title is still in the is still in the wind. The, the state actually sent me an email saying the title number is not or the VIN number is not in our system. I'm like, yeah, because the car has been sitting in my grandmother's backyard probably since before the clerk who sent me that email was, was born. <laughs> That's whatever. So anyway, I I the car drives just fine. It needs it needs still needs some work. I mean, the fluids all need change other than the oil. Um, it, it's serviceable enough to drive around my property so it's not in the way. And now I'm just waiting on the paperwork so I can take it to the transmission shop and have them flush the transmission. Um, but yeah, that's the only thing. I put tires on it. Um, my my mechanic and my tattoo artist came over. Uh, my tattoo artist has a 63 Galaxy. So he's all about this car. He's like, I want to know all. Want, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do. Yeah, this would be cool. And... Uh, yeah, it fires up better than my than my my Toyota. Toyota cranks over two or three times. That car pump the gas twice. Boom! It's like. And then when I was talking to my uncle Steve about the car, when I got the paper from, he's like, "Oh yeah, in like nineteen eighty four, I think I put like twenty eight hundred dollars in that motor." I'm like, "Doing what? Twenty eight hundred dollars in in nineteen eighty four is like three months." worth of work right. i don't remember i tell you it'll it'll burn the back tires right off the car so so right. it's but yeah no i'm a bit of a gearhead uh, i try I'm, doing art i'm not gearhead but i'm I, I understand enough that i know what i'm not doing but thankfully i have friends that are like a buddy of mine he's a certified mechanic and uh, I'll pitch ideas off him every once in a while, just you know, halfway through a bottle of bourbon. Like, hey, w- remember when I had a geo tracker and we put eighteen hundred dollar off road tires on a two hundred fifty dollar car? Uh, what nice if I bought another that. one and took my seven point five V eight out of my out of my two fifty and put that into a tracker? What could I do that? <laughs> it's like first thing I get back at why? <laughs> because. <laughs> yeah. Because I found because. a company that makes track kits for geo trackers, and I could register it as a UTV in my county. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know that's 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 another one of those things where, like, I've got friends who buy those UTVs. Oh, I spent twenty seven thousand dollars on this. Why don't you buy a mid nineties Jeep? Right. Take the doors off. Well, well, nothing. The Jeep's got a heater. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, but, my dad. But, my dad's leverage to me not to not allow me to put him into a nursing home one day is a '76 Grand Torino Elite, which they only made '74, '76, and he's held on to it all these years. And nice. The title is in the safe that uh, I'm pretty sure an 18 pound cannonball wouldn't break open, and he won't give me the combination until he's on his deathbed. So. <laughs> well, make sure. Get it. It's I've a got a funny story too. about it. Oh, yeah, it sounds like it. I've got a funny story about a cannonball. Too. Yeah. 
<laughs> so get I, back on archaeology. <laughs> provenience. So provenience. Yes, provenience um, versus pro- provenance. If I'm saying that right. <laughs> provenance. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'll tell the story and then I'll get into that. So when I was doing my undergrad, I'm down in the lab, right? And one of the things that we had to deal with was donated artifacts. And there was, and it was in a box and it had a card with it. This little cardboard box inside is a six pound fused cannonball. And nobody knew what it was. It's a cannonball. And you take the card out and you look at the card. And on the card, it's written in very beautiful cursive. It's barely legible. But it, on the other side, it was actually printed. And this cannonball had been excavated, apparently had been found while digging a ditch for a, from a well at Gettysburg in 1893. And the person who found it kept it and moved out to Montana for whatever their reason and donated it or their family donated it in 1921 to the University of Montana. And here it is, this cannonball. It's been sitting on however many professors' desks. It's been stuffed in cupboards, all of this stuff. And it's cannonball, right? Okay, it's cannonball. Well, nobody at the time in the lab knew anything about munitions until I walked in. So I'm sitting at the desk, and I've got the cannonball, and I'm spinning it, and I stop, and I look, and I... there's lettering on this. And I write the lettering down, and I was like, you realize that this is a fused cannonball, right? <laughs> What's that mean? It's explosive. <laughs> SWAT showed up. <laughs> you, know, you know, it went to the, the police department. The police department took it out to the landfill and cracked it open with a bit of plastic explosive. And then brought it back to us in a bag. And it's it fits all together. But it was grape shot. Okay. It was an explosive fuse cannonball. And the lettering on the bottom of the fuse that I was able to find tracked it to like attracted to Great Britain. And it was one of these six-pounder cannon shot that would launch, and it, the fuse would be on fire. And when it reached, when that fuse burned through wherever it was in flight, it would blow up, and you'd have the casing itself would be damaging. Mm-hmm. But inside, it was all thirty-two buckshot, pretty serious. Yeah, know that. And apparently, and I re- I found out some information on it. I, I read up on it. Apparently, the British sent a bunch of these cannonballs to the Confederacy via block runner, blockade runners because none of them worked. <laughs> they, they all were duds. I mean, you can shoot them out of cannon, and if they hit somebody, it would end their day quite badly, but <laughs> they were never going to explode. <laughs> they, would, they had all been contaminated at the factory or something <laughs> like that. They were all wet, and it just didn't. So, so it was a big deal. And then, of course, I showed all that documentation to Bethany, who was running the lab at the time. She looks like he could have just brought me this before the cops showed up. I was like, eh. <laughs> but yeah, no, that that cannonball is <laughs> something else, something else. But yeah, provenience versus provenance. 
This is a, a hot one. topic debate. It seems yeah, to be on, uh, on the old TikTok. Ooh, man. Um, so so provenance, provenience comes from the word provenance. So provenance is a, is a is a French word, um, and it comes you know from Latin, and it's essentially the origin of, or where from. So the provenance of that car, your dad's, is Detroit, you know, on this date. And it went through, it left the factory, it went to the dealership, and then your dad bought it. That's the provenance of that car. The provenience of that car is that it's at your dad's house. It's parked in the garage on the left side of the garage, covered in about four, three years of newspaper and an old army car. You're actually not too far off. <laughs> exactly, right? But, you know, the, the, the provenience is, I mean, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, if that car was still there, they would be able to tell the absolute age of that car because of all of the data around it. That's the provenience. So the actual position in which an artifact is found. So when I say provenience, and I'm talking about a specific artifact, I'm talking about, you know, the, the depth in the ground. What was it found with? What, you know, all, all of that obnoxious archaeological stuff that we record all the time when we find something. The provenance of it is where did it originate? And if you look at the definition on the internet, they use a, they use a coin as an example. The provenance of that Roman coin is a mint in, in you know, outside of Rome, and it would have been packed on a horse over the Alps to the Rhine to a, to a forward Roman army base where it would have then been one of a thousand coins handed out to this regiment of centurions who then would have gone into the town and spent it, and then that coin would have wound up in the pocket of a merchant who would go back to Spain because that's where good wine is to buy more wine and then it would get on a boat somehow and the boat would sink. So the provenance of that is where it started and where it traveled until it got to the shipwreck. And then the shipwreck is the provenience. It's from a shipwreck that dates to this time period, which proves that it is a real legitimate artifact. So that's what I mean by provenance or provenance and provenience. Why do so, people get so bent out of shape over that then? Because provenience is a specific, like, is a very specific word. <laughs> like, provenance, provenance seems to be used rather regularly. I, I, I use the two interchangeably. Like, and I, when I think of the word, I go, oh, it's just, it's just a word. But um, there, there's a creator on here um, who does interesting history facts. He wears the pork pie hat and the plaid that the, I can't remember his his handle at the moment, but he's a he's a curator at a museum, and he's he's like the we use provenance in respect to curation of artifacts, exactly, you know, like I said like I said before, if you have an artifact that's out on an exhibit, all that paperwork is the provenance of that artifact, so the artifact can come back to the repository. the pro, The provenience is where it came from out in the field, wherever. I, I've, I've seen it used in archaeology. Um, apparently, forestry utilizes it for seeding. You know, the provenience of certain seeds allows you to track the, the, the 
the genetic makeup of that particular tree or that genetic combination. So you actually have a viable grove that starts growing with enough genetic diversity to survive kind of thing. And then like um, the provenience of evidence at a crime scene, you know, was the gun under his hand? Was the gun underneath the table? I mean, that, that kind of detail and, and information that you need. Um, but I think because it's kind of a very specific word, people will hear it and go, oh, he's saying this word that I am familiar with, wrong. Um, people will also say that I'm using Providence wrong. And I'm like, we're not talking about a town in Rhode Island. <laughs> you know, there's nothing Jesus-y about this particular pair of shoes we found in the bog. You know I mean? <laughs> so, but it's, it's just a, you know, it's just a, it's just a word that is, is not in common use, you know, and like, I mean, and this is, this goes for everybody. And I've been, I've been guilty of doing this too. When you hear something you're not familiar with nine times out of 10, you're just going to go, I don't think that's right or this person's wrong based on my experience and all it would take is a quick Google search all it would take is a look at a dictionary right you know and that and that is what it is I'm not going to fault anybody but I've, I've done some really nice ones and I've done some kind of sarcastic <laughs> ones that I've done I think the one I did with all the examples was actually quite nice but <laughs> I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it too because I I, I've just given up with arguments on the internet. Some of the best advice I've ever given was never argue with a drunk or a fool. Both will beat you with experience and given enough time, both will drag you down to their level. So, yeah. And back in college, I, so I was a history teaching major and then, and then threw poli-sci in there too because I was an idiot. And I was that guy on Facebook spouting out here's everything wrong with the world and here's how to fix blah 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 and then eventually decide to calm down a little bit and now it's just if i didn't have this podcast i wouldn't be on social media at all but yeah such is life but... yeah social media is kind of a double-edged sword and uh that's I, why I, I got on tiktok in the first place i'm like oh here's a app that's blowing up here's a chance to promote the podcast and there you go despite 20 years of talking to people for a living and that's why i do now for anywhere from 40 to 80 hours a week and then i do the podcast you'd think i'd be comfortable talking into a camera <laughs> you know i i don't know about i don't know if that ever changes you know? right. <laughs> um what's you know what's kind of funny is that i mean you know this is i i was pacing for about four hours before i got on here oh i'm, I'm right there with you <laughs> you know oh shit, shit what I say, what I say? you know and then now i just thought about it oh i've just cussed a little bit listen to your podcast with Josh. Oh, we don't like cussing on the podcast. I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, but like, you know, it's, it's something that I like, I, I didn't expect would take off me. Like pretty much every other person during pandemic, it, I was bored, you know, um, my, you know, one of your questions on here is how did COVID affect my job? Yeah. <laughs> uh, other than scheduling, it really did. But because the agency I work for only has like 16 field vehicles and we were not allowed to have more than one person per field vehicle and there was like 14 foresters, we couldn't go out in the field at the same time. So my weekend, my week was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, four tens. And even if I was hanging out with people during COVID, everybody I'm friends with 
that's when they're on. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't seeing anybody. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I was bored, you know, nobody, nobody's out and about during the days I'm off work. <laughs> and I, and I tried to go out and go fishing and I've never seen that many people in my life in this state. We were packed the moment the borders opened on like June 1st or whatever it was last mm -hmm. year. Every single person that could rent an RV, a van, or a little car they could stretch out in was here exploring, which is fine, except for the fact that it, 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 so many fires were started. I put out mm -hmm. 132 fires. Okay. People yeah. just leaving their camp campsites. Oh, I'm just going to leave. It's in the stone ring. It's not going to go anywhere. Like, you don't know how fireworks. <laughs> um, but I, I, it just, yeah, I just didn't go out. So I had projects around the house. And then when I wasn't doing projects around the house, I decided, oh, I'm, I, I spent more time on my phone. Like, I actually started playing games on my tablet, you know, <laughs> something I don't do, you know, Ooh, video games. But then I downloaded TikTok. <laughs> and... I think I downloaded it like like the fall of 2019 because I saw something that was like, oh, maybe I should download it. But I didn't do anything with it, and I was never going to post anything. And then I, I, I saw what people were posting, and I was like, I've got a couple of stupid little videos I can put up. You know, the very first one I did is like a, is, is a, is a city of Idaho Falls truck driving down the road and it's got a pile of sand in the back and the sand is just running out of the cracks in the bed and it's one of those you know you know he's going to get where he's going he's going to look back and there's going to be no sand so i i was like oh this is like the days of our lives <laughs> and you can hear the guy i'm working you can hear my buddy that i was working with and driving you know he starts laughing and that was the first video i did oh it's nothing's gonna happen and then here we are now and i'm like well i don't know what the hell's going on <laughs> you know um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm approaching 300,000 followers. Unlike, I mean, and there's people that I follow and people that I'm, I've, I've become friends with through the app who have like a thousand followers and they have merch and they have, and they have all of this stuff. And I'm at 300,000 followers and I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> you know, I have no idea. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, um, well, it's a weird time to be because we're really at the four. I mean, the internet's now kind of, you know, I'd say it's still in its you know, teenage years at best, if you're to put it into human terms. You know, well, it's, yeah, maybe. It's, it's like at that 13 year old where you think you're an adult, but you're really not. And, but as far as like. Isn't that politics? <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> I'd still put that at the terrible threes. <laughs> oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. But you have these people that have this huge following and people are like, oh, you should make a shirt. You should do this. And it's like, okay, how do I do that? And I'm, I'm in the same boat with podcast of trying to figure out the merch game and, and what do you think? You got a shirt on? Like, yeah, yeah. This is, well, this was a demo shirt um, I did a, years ago. Um, the back says no bad days, which I, I actually picked up from a customer of mine who just happened to walk into my store and, you know, the usual, hey, how's it going today? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, let me sell you something. And he goes, you know I've never had a bad day. Some are better than others. And that was. Uh, That's pretty years. wise right there. Yeah. Seven years ago or something like that. And for whatever reason, it just stuck with me. Fast forward a few years later, I'm, I have this half-assed idea of, of starting a company and not sure how to do it and eventually land on podcast. And 
and my buddy's like, hey, you should do merch again. I'm like, oh, okay. And like logo, yeah. obviously. It's a shame of self-promotion. What do I put on the back? I want something on the back. I just don't want this dead negative space. And, and then that clicked in my head. And it was a little go. wordy to say that whole thing. And so my, my buddy, who's more creative than I am or could ever hope to be, just sent me a template of no bad days. I like that. We, we ran there you go. That, that works. See, you're a step ahead of me because people are like, oh, you should make merch. I'm like, of what? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, <think> you... provenience. <laughs> you know, people are like, yes. make a shirt saying provenience. And I'm like, I suppose, or cite your sources. Yeah. You know, that, that seems to be a, a a thing that I do that the ancient aliens people don't. <laughs> um, That's another question I had. Um, yeah. Shows like Ancient Aliens or uh, um, Oak Island, stuff like that. Does it hurt your field in the public eye? Extremely. Extremely. You know, as, as I'm sure you you can see through some of the comments that I respond to, um, th- there, there's two type of people that I end up responding to who, who are being snide. And obviously some of them are just that the only thi- the only reason they exist is to get a rise out of others and they, you know I have stimulated some sort of joy for them by responding. Great. I made somebody's day. Okay. <laughs> 60 seconds of pain. <laughs> yeah. But then there's that, but then there's people who are, who are genuinely, this is true. And you're lying. You're lying. To me. You know, the, the, the angry, the angry Marine guy. I don't know if you saw that one. Oh my God. Every single one of his videos, he's raging at archeologists. I'm sitting there like, well, this guy obviously, Somebody must have stepped on his dog's <laughs> tail or something. I mean, he's just angry. But everything he's saying is just right up there with the rest of the pseudoscience and stuff. And the moment you say, hey, the evidence doesn't point to that. You're wrong. You're lying. I read it on Wikipedia, so it must be true. Well, you know, I read stuff on Wikipedia too all the time. <laughs> and you know what Wikipedia does? Wikipedia cites its sourcing, <laughs> you know? I mean, I had a professor, and I ever, apparently everybody's had this professor, who says, don't you dare use Wikipedia in your paper. You can, however, use Wikipedia to find sources for your paper. That's brilliant, you know, because I've done that. I've, I've, I've been like, oh, look up something. First thing comes up, Wikipedia. Scroll all the way to the bottom. References. Where did they pull their information? Well, this one might not work. This, oh, but look at these three that are from this guy who's an absolute expert in the field and has published many, many, many other papers. You know, if you know the guy's name, well, now there's your avenue to chase more documentation. And you learn it from Wikipedia. But, um, but yeah, those, those, those TV shows, and like I said with like the Ian Jones movie, there's people that don't, that are unable apparently to make the distinction. You know, the, the, I don't know why they want to believe ancient aliens. I, I, I find something disconcerting about believing that hair, which continues to get crazier and crazier. Yeah. 
and it's it's a gimmick. It's obviously a gimmick. Why are you believing the gimmick? And for me, well, I've been a history nerd as long as I can remember. You know, as a little kid, I could you could point to a, the spine fossil of a dinosaur, and I could tell you what it came out of. Long gone now. But by middle school and high school, went head first into World War II history. Mm-hmm. Now it's just history as a whole, and I can't get my hands down on enough books about random subjects, and which is why Wikipedia is dangerous for me. I'll, I'll go through the sources and start whatever rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. There's, there's a rabbit later. hole, and then there's the rabbit hole. <laughs> right. But watch it. I've watched one episode of Ancient Aliens, and the takeaway I got was they have their answer and it was uh whatever site uh what's the the inca site um that's real famous nazca yes thank you nazca yeah was built by aliens this is our answer now how do we find the evidence to prove prove that quote unquote it's like that's not how this works that's not how any of this works (laughs) you you know what's what's funny and i mean i'm getting asked about it i've since that unicorn video that I debunked, which got me famous, let's let's give that video its credence. <laughs> you know, I since then I've had I've been getting tagged about a dozen times a day. Hey, what do you think about this? Or just tag me in the video and I can see what I can see the first page of it. And it's, it's already that that skinny kid with the coke ball glasses talking about the Sphinx or it's it's what's his face. Joe with the cheese hat or, you know, all any of these other conspiracy theory pages that are that at, at this point, I think half of them are in it just for views because it's obviously getting views. Yeah. That's the one making the rounds right now. The um, Egyptians built the temple in the grand Canyon or something. To oh, like I didn't, didn't I do a nine part series on that? Yes. Yes. And I, I was laughing. Yeah. The damn time. Oh man. Um, but sorry, I had a train and then I yeah, lost so, it. Sorry, I, I wrecked that. <laughs> um, <laughs> like no, unicorn. But, but like, yeah. So the moment that unicorn video went wild, and I suddenly started getting all these people, and then the Gobekli Tepe one, yeah. where I debunked the girl. Those people got bent the hell out of shape about that because. <laughs> She's a very pretty white girl. Well, how dare I tell her she's wrong? I'm like, I don't care what your gender or color or anything it is. If you're saying something stupid and it's something I care about, like my career, <laughs> I might say something. So, but I, I see these these things and I'll, I'll, I'll look at where they're coming from and it's ancient aliens. Or even more ridiculous, it's coming from science fiction from the 20s like the Anunnaki or however you pronounce it which ancient aliens has just jumped right on because oh my well the Anunnaki are Egyptian no they're not they're 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 Persian they're they're Babylonian but the point is is that they come from a translation of Babylonian artifacts and cuneiform that went through what was it? Babylonian to Egyptian to Greek to Latin to French to German 
to English in translation. How much has been lost in that translation? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know who who grabbed a hold of that and ran with it? H.P. No. Lovecraft. The ancient aliens theory, or the ancient aliens trope, is not new. It's from H.P. Lovecraft and the other guy, Wells. Not or no, who's the other guy? H.P. Lovecraft and there's Robert. The other, the other sci-fi pulp fiction writer from thirty. He died early. He died before Lovecraft. Uh, I want to say Howard. Howard. Rob Howard. Yeah. I think. That yeah. sounds. He he created yeah. Conan. I think he's the guy that wrote Conan. The Barbarian. Yeah, he's got the internet in front of him real quick. Perks of having a few monitors. I've only got two. <laughs> What's funny is that I also started playing Dungeons & Dragons for the first time ever. <laughs> because I have friends on TikTok who are like, we're a ton of D&D nerds, you're going to play with us. Um, I've advanced more in technology in the last month than I have in the last 25 years. <laughs> I've got a There's webcam a... and two monitors. <laughs> Instead of switching in my lap. Howard uh, wrote Conan Adventure in 1966. Uh, no, oh. not him. So I'm thinking of the, there was another writer in the early thirties, mid early to mid thirties at the same time as HP Lovecraft. And they actually talked or they actually had correspondence back and forth, but they were the same published in the back of boys magazines, science fiction, weird tales kind of stuff. And all of those ancient alien tropes, like the pyramids in Antarctica, that's from the, the Mountains of Madness, or in the Mountains of Madness from H.P. Lovecraft. Well, that appears in a book in like the 50s or early 60s written by a Frenchman whose name I cannot remember. Well, then that same trope appears almost to the letter in a book by some guy named Eric Von Donneken. Ancient alien. And it was so obvious that he ripped off this French guy that he was faced with a lawsuit by the estate of this author, this French author. And the way he got out of it was citing him, was giving him credit. He didn't go to he didn't go to court to fight it. He cited the guy because oh crap, I got caught. But you know, it's 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 one of those things where you have these shows and and like Everybody's been telling me about Graham Hancock. He was on Joe Rogan. Yeah. Well, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> what does that have to do with my field and the fact that I've been studying this in an academic setting for over 15 years and I've been working in it for 10? What does that have to do with, oh, well, he knows more about your job. No, we don't. No, we don't. You know, Just because like you have a megaphone doesn't mean you're right. Exactly. But, you know, um, there, there'll be people that watch these shows and they'll take it as gospel truth. And then they'll tell me that my that I'm wrong. And I'm not saying that they're wrong. Just like every other archaeologist out there, we're, we're saying that there's no evidence for it. There's a hell of a difference there. Oh, no, no, no. You obviously don't know what you're looking at. And that gets us back to the do, do you want do you want the electrician taking out your appendix or the doctor? You know, <laughs> who are you going to believe? 
Um, the the Golbekl Tepe one is a great example because I did I answered a question about it that people asked how old it was, or the person asked is like I find it hard to believe that it was being constructed before man developed agriculture and cities. I said, well, it wasn't, but it was started, and there is a difference. And I pointed out that you know this site which has been buried well parts of it have been filled in to be built on which is what we do every time we demo a building we fill that hole in what do we fill it in with oh, more dirt or parts of the old building you know the 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 developments they can do modification of things it's in a city in france or ancient in greece i can't remember now but there's like a city on top of what is there today, or, or yeah. below, excuse me, they just built right over the top. Obviously, it's not the whole buildings anymore, but I mean, you can walk every like it's, a, like it's catacomb. Yeah. yeah, every major city on the planet. Seattle has that. New York has that. You know, you can see where they built land in New York. When, the, when they were cleaning up the Twin Towers, they found the remains of the ships that had been filled with rock and sunk to create land to build in the marsh, okay. <laughs> which is where the Twin Towers are. Mm-hmm. The the whole side, the whole inner side of the the harbor there in San Francisco is built on sunken ships and fill. <laughs> it's not it's not real land. You go to Paris. Paris has the catacombs. So does Rome. So does London. Edinburgh. There's parts of Edinburgh that they just went right over the top of because of the plague they buried parts of the town every place where you have huge amounts of human population just gets buried and filled in and buried and filled in and, you know as the needs of the population changes you know um missoula is a great example of that um indigenous archaeology in montana is pretty thin not because they haven't been here long it's because that there's not a lot of sedentary mass building there's not any real agriculture there's nothing that creates a lot of deposition of artifacts it's all within the first foot well missoula is built on the confluence of five valleys two of which are major rivers it's an absolutely beautiful spot it's perfect for grazing animals because there's enough flat land before you get to the mountains and it's kind of in a weathered donut hole Bad weather goes to the south, bad weather goes to the north, and what you get here in the basin is pretty mild. What what did European Americans do when they got here? Well, they built on top of it. What did the indigenous peoples for thousands of years do? At certain parts of the year, there were teepee villages from one end of the basin to the other because it's a good spot for habitation. Built on top of it. And as the needs change, you know, the old buildings come down and they fill them in and the new buildings get built on top. Gobekli Tepe was was a site of, used by humans for 2,000 years. And when people say, oh, look at this, it shows that, the you know, that there, a meteor killed all the people from Atlantis. When was that, when was that block put up? Did you bother looking at any of the paperwork? Did you bother looking at any of the site when did that monument get posted? Because you can see it in the deposition of the site. No, they don't look at that. Oh, no, it shows a comet. 
It's obviously a comet has hit the Earth. Does it show it hitting the Earth? It could just be the observation of a comet. So when someone like me says, why did the comet have to hit the Earth? Maybe it's just an observation of a celestial event. You know, the, 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 um, there's a battle between the Medes and the Lydians. Uh, um, and I can't remember the name of the river. But there was a date associated with it down to the day because a lunar eclipse happened, shut the light off from the battlefield, and everybody <laughs> stopped fighting because, holy shit, the gods must be pissed. <laughs> and it got recorded yeah. extensively. Well, the world didn't end. It just, the light just flickered a moment. <laughs> and it made such an impression that they recorded it. How come this comet at Gobekli Tepe had to hit the planet? Maybe it was just bright enough like Haley's Comet or one of these other celestial motions that we yeah. see. What's the one that exploded over Russia uh, before it actually hit the surface, but it um, a shitload of forestry? That was like, I think that was the Tung, the Tungkensa, mm, Tungkatsa event. Yeah. That was a meteor. Yeah, I mean, so was, yeah. it could be something like that where... It yes, could have been hit the ground, but there's enough force behind it. To there's enough force of it to ruin somebody's day and create some sort of local lore. But that's a law. I mean, the locals saying, hey, the day all the trees fell down and it killed half of our people is a long, far away cry from the, the world got a hard reset <laughs> all over the planet with no evidence. And that's that's what you see some of these theories trying to do. Um, when 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 people say, "Oh, Graham Hancock has this theory about the mother the mother culture," and I say, "Well, that's a load of crap." They go, "Well, you don't know what you're talking about." Made from gold by an alien race to mine more gold. Well, if we were, you know what that means? There should be no problems between any people of whatever affiliation, color, shape, size, gender, whatever, because we're all the goddamn same. <laughs> you know? But but when you say, oh, hey, there's there's no evidence of that, and they go, well, how do you know? Well, the archaeological record kind of does this. It, it goes up, and it progresses. And yeah, there's little ups and downs, little ups and downs, and there's some drops, and there's some ups and there. But generally across, you know, let's let's call it 100,000 years of human intelligence where we're actually utilizing distinctive stone tools. We have stone tools dating back 3 million years where somebody picked up a rock and figured, oh, if I break this rock a certain way, I, I can cut a food. You know, I mean, <laughs> I can cut somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's a progression as it goes up. And it's it's almost completely unbroken like you don't see this everything is stopped like a massive event that killed everybody there's no dead zone there. there's you know people leave an area but everywhere else around that area still has artifacts still has life progressing there's nothing that stands out in respect to development there's a couple little hiccups like the Antikytheria mechanism, which was found in a shipwreck 2,000 years ago. It's the it's it looks like a piece of a time machine. Well, they found out that it's just a essentially a seagoing calculator, an orrery. It, it tabulates the. Well, I think it was it was meant to count 
you know, to, to measure tides or moon cycles or something. It'd be very difficult to create back then, which is probably why we've only ever found one. Mm-hmm. But it's not impossible. And again, with the, oh, we've only found one, so it's obviously got to be one. No. How about the one guy that made them, and the one guy that had the skill to make them, never passed that on to his apprentice or his son or whatever. So the 50 that got made were the 50 that were it. And one has survived. That's pretty good odds, you know, over 2,000 years. Right. There's, there's, there's nothing that says, oh, hey, there's this one distinctive cultural binder artifact that covers the entire world that shows, yes, we all come from the same spot and we are all the same culture. There's no structure. There's no, I mean, Gobekli Tepe is the only thing that survived across the planet. <laughs> really? The only thing. You know, we're, we're finding our, we're finding three million year old stone tools. Don't you think they would have been washed away too? You know, the, all the stone tools that come prior to that, Gobekli Tepe, all the stone tools that are at Gobekli Tepe, they are pretty, pretty linear. They don't seem to have a big interruption. Gobekli Tepe doesn't just appear. You could, it, it was built up and then it was abandoned because it no longer served the purpose of the people and fell into disarray and ruin. You know, Detroit. Mm-hmm. Detroit's doing the same thing. The only difference is, is that we know what Detroit is. But a thousand years from now, people, you know, future archaeologists will look at Detroit and go, what was this place? And they'll make all of their own crazy assumptions as well. Because I'm not going to say that we're absolutely right about everything. You know, there's jokes about how if we don't know what it is, we call it ritual. You know, what is it? I don't know. Oh, it's obviously ritual. You know, somebody called. Go ahead. ahead. I was going to say somebody I I saw somewhere. I don't know how true this was because I never bothered to really look it up. But somebody found a a particularly um, male shaped rock. Well, what do you think it is? But nobody <laughs> wanted to say what they thought it was. Right. So it was it was ritual. <laughs> this, this cup is ritual. It, 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 I, I do a, I do an act every morning. I put life giving beverage in it, and I <laughs> the magic bean juice. The, the magic bean juice. That's a ritual. Mm-hmm. So a coffee cup is a ritual. <laughs> you know, it just it's. But yeah, those those TV shows just and it further removes what I actually do versus what they see on TV. Because when people find out that I'm an archaeologist, they, they, they either go, oh, like ancient alien, oh, like Indiana Jones, or, and this is my favorite, I love dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know that, 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 that's something a six-year-old can say. I love dinosaurs. I'm like, yes, you do. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> you're not going to tell a six-year-old that, your dreams are wrong, <laughs> you know, but you would think, you know, and explaining it to somebody, what's the archaeology is part of anthropology, which is the study of people and throw where dinosaurs fit in. They don't. Paleontology. That's paleontology. Yeah. And that's, so and I want to be a paleontologist. umbrella field, and then you have paleontology, anthropology, Egyptology, yada, 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 throughout there. Um, No. Okay. So, so, so anthropology is the umbrella. Okay. And this is only in the States. This is only in the States. So in the States, 
if you go into archaeology, you know, you look at my degree. My degree says Bachelor of Arts Anthropology. Archaeology is my focus. Archaeology is what I what I aimed for. There's archaeology, bioanthropology, which is the study of the meat and the bones. There's cultural anthropology, which is everything from from why do we why do we cheer on football to religion to tattoos to you know gatherings. I mean the, the culture, and then there's linguistics, which is you know the 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 vocalization and you know the the this form of communication which is not unique to humans animals make noise to talk as well but you know ours is our our linguistical background there i say seems to be suitably um complicated suitably complex for what we're 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 putting forth paleontology is is more of like like wildlife biology in my mind i don't even know what it falls under um but it's considered a science versus anthropology which is considered a humanity even though you can still do scientific things within archaeology um if you were to go to europe archaeology is its own field sure. you get a degree in archaeology and they don't combine them you can focus on one thing when i was doing my undergrad i had to take linguistics i had to take an osteology class for my bioanthropology uh requirement i had to take cultural anthropology which was one of half a dozen classes of which i don't think really any of them were really that good for what i was going to be doing they seemed to be well, I mean, the, the the one was more of a history class. I mean, it was it was part of the curriculum because I think it needed a spot. It was kind of lonely. It was the only Persian history class <laughs> in the entire school. It was like, okay, well, I mean, there's an archaeological background there pretty extensively. So, sure, stick it as a requirement there. I need to pick your brain about that after after we go off there because I've been looking oh, sure. for I, I've been looking for a reputable book on the history of Persia in particular. Right? podcast okay. sent me down a rabbit hole of stuff but we can get into that later <laughs> oh sure. sure but yeah so um, how did how did egyptology become its own field is it just because there's so much history there exactly or... okay you you could you could go to egypt and you could never leave you could you could work on that on specifically egyptian stuff for your entire career your entire life and your children's children's children would still be doing the work you're doing. Which it seems to be that the, the case. I, I was just watching. In that. some cases, um, what was it? They found a, a burial site of a pharaoh or someone in the high, you know, in the royal family, if you will. I think it's on Netflix. I'll have to look it up later. But um, but some of the guys that were working there, like, yep, my I'm third generation, albeit just lowly employee who is digging mm. sand but i mean three generations of people working in the yeah. same region on this project and here they are yep. now it took three generations just to go hey we now have a name and we know his mother and we think we know the father mm -hmm. and the uncle and blah 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 and yeah just i'm yeah. fascinated by that kind of stuff and i'm a, I'm the, a real right at parties let me tell you 
<laughs> Fit right in at the parties I go to. Right. Um, you know, yeah, there's, um, yeah, Egyptology is, is its own, has its own methodology. And, it, and I mean, any archaeologist can be an Egyptologist. An Egyptologist can't necessarily be an archaeologist anywhere else because they're so focused on what they're working on. Um, you'd be hard hard pressed to take an Egyptologist out of Egypt and send him to the American Southwest and say, "Tell me about the Anasazi." But you can blink at you. <laughs> but you could take me, an archaeologist who's done work in the Southwest, and you know my bag is historic archaeology. Victorian and Georgian era mining in the frontier West and aviation. That's like my bag and what I'm really, really good at. You can send me to Egypt though, and I can give you a decent idea and I can walk myself through it without having my hand held. <clears throat> so, but yeah, Egyptology is so very specific. And then the guys who are doing the grunt work for the archeologists, um, one, they don't get enough credit, not the slightest, because they're doing all the grunt work. But um, in that in in that situation, it's a good job. So the father has it, or the grandfather has it, and brings his son in, who then brings his son in because it's a continual good thing. But but yeah, I I know I know which one you're talking about. Of course, I can't remember which one he is. But, but uh, speaking of. Egyptology. I know it's not your field, but many, many months ago, I, I shot you a question. You actually responded to it, and it was something along the lines of the theory that there is a civilization that predates the Egyptian civilization. You gave it a thought-out answer, and what I was trying to remember at the time, and it was just blowing. I, I, I couldn't think of it, but also it's hard to fit a well-thought-out question in what a hundred characters, hundred forty characters that you get. Yeah. In uh, Robert Schock. Mm -hmm. I heard him on another the water podcast. theory. Not not the water theory necessarily, um, but his that the Sphinx is ten thousand years older than what is accepted today. And his, I guess he wrote a book on it. I haven't read the book yet, but he theorized that the Sahara Desert at one point was a nice, either tropical or subtropical forest, and then. Mm -hmm something wiped it out and so he called up some people at the north pole that were doing some ice samples and said hey do you by chance have evidence around this time period of a massive solar flare and they said yes blah blah and so his running theory was there's a thriving civilization and within somewhere between a week and a month solar flare hits and just completely hits the reset button on them and that's what I was trying. And I, like for me, I'm just listening to a podcast. I know nothing mm -hmm. about it. Like, well, it seems cre more credible than Oak Islander, Ancient Aliens, or uh, Graham Hancock because he's saying, "Here's the evidence I have." I'm not saying yes, this is true. I'm saying here's this could be an idea. Let's explore it. But seem to be ostracized by the Egyptology field and community because of that. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Well. The, the, the problem with that I see with it when he says I have this idea that there was a there was a civilization that was that was um, advanced enough and had the resources and infrastructure enough to build something like the Sphinx 
within a week to a month hard reset where's the pieces right where's i mean i mean that's that would be my response where's the infrastructure where is the buildings you know a hard reset like that is almost is is almost the best case scenario for archaeology because it locks everything in time you know some of the best sites pompeii pompeii happened in a day and we are finding i mean they just found a chariot at pompeii one of like three ever found wood tin bronze the whole shooting match the horses with the tack are still in the barn so quick that's that's like perfect for for preserving things my question would be where is it and i know the sahara is, is well, covered in sand and pretty deep but we're not the only ones with eyes to recognize its its antiquity remember what i said about the first archaeologist the first archaeologist you know nabonidus the second the first recorded one is 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 three thousand years ago and he's out looking now he might be looking in some fashion to say well not only am i king this ancient stuff proves that my lineage makes me king you know the 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 inscription that's at the sphinx the 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 dream steel um where the that pharaoh tutmos says i had a dream that the sphinx told me to dig him out and they attribute it to the pharaoh you know uh, kofu or kufu i can i always pronounce his name i think it's called kufu corfu or something like that yeah but the the they attribute this thing to something that's a thousand years old or fifteen hundred years old at the time of Tutmos. So it's it's ancient history to them. They attribute it to them, or they they say this thing told me to let him out. People were paying attention. So back then, finding a whole civilization, there would have been record of. There would have been stories of it. And as much as people want Atlantis to be real, <laughs> you know, the, the person that Atlantis comes from is Plato. You know, Plato describes Atlantis. And at the, you know, I think it was, I think it was maybe 20 years before Plato creates Atlantis, Mount Thera explodes and sinks the city of Santor, sinks the island of Santorini in the city of uh... crap. Of course, I can't remember it. <laughs> um, I know the wave tops of the story, though. Yeah, I mean the the city that was there on Santorini it was in the perfect spot to be sunk when a volcano erupted, <laughs> and the and you know the waves come up, the tsunami from the eruption sinks it. The ground liquefies and it's swallowed by the earth. There's fire and raining doom. And everything about the Atlantis myth is Santorini. And then the Minoan civilization, which was very advanced for the time period, Minoans had plumbing inside the house, you know. 
all of their cities are on the coast. What's the first thing it hits gets get hit gets hit by a tsunami from a volcano? Their cities. So they didn't get destroyed, but it certainly crippled their place on the world stage. And then you have this description of a of a, of a civilization, which you could attribute to um, Akateri, the city of Akateri on on Santorini, is the is the city. I remember what years and years ago. I remember watching a documentary, and they they uh, they're like, "We're gonna find Atlantis, but not like the story version. Like we believe it was a city. We believe it was attributed to flooding or something. In this case, blah blah." Mm-hmm. blah. And I can't I can't remember if they figured if they attribute to Akateri or not, but it was a city on or near the coast, and they even found a roadway via old mm-hmm. written descriptions. And sure enough via satellite imaging and i think they use the uh lidar mm-hmm. light, light imaging blah blah yeah right. they uh they were able to map where this road was and there's mm-hmm. a breakoff point that goes farther out and they start oh where's that go and they start finding hand carved yep. stone and like oh shit i think we found something yeah but, i think that's akateri okay because there's roads on the island that go into the ocean yeah that that, that very well could be them um but, you know, there's cities falling into the ocean is not new. No. Alexandria fell in the ocean. Port Royal, that's recent. Port Royal is recent. But you give it another 500 years or 1,000 years and it becomes a story. It becomes, you know, the details get lost as it's going through. But a city that, or a, a civilization that built the Sphinx, they only built one. You'd think they would build more. I mean, the Egyptians built how many pyramids? And I know their civilization lasted thousands and thousands of years, but the Sphinx was not a thing that got built overnight. And if they had... Go ahead, sorry. If if they had the technology to build one, why not build more? And why is that technological prowess not exhibited within their city, within their infrastructure? Where's the roads? Where's the water system? Where's the agriculture? Um, you know, the, the the fact that, you know, even eat and, and say it is buried under the sands of the Sahara. What about the ancient artifacts that would have been found in ancient times from that place? Because the sands always move and the sands always change. The Sahara 2000 years ago was different than the Sahara we have now. So when a theory like, like, uh, his comes up. Yeah, there might have been solar flare activity. But the thing he's wanting to have the solar flares make go away is too big to not leave something behind. You know, even, I mean, there's, 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 you know, influence all over the area of of, of people coming in and changing in some fashion what that worldview is. You know, you see that the Hellenistic period in Egypt, everything looks sort of Greek. Well, because the Greeks are in charge. But at some point that trade would show, you know, how, how, did, how did steel get to Europe if it started in the Middle East? Well, they didn't bring all the forges with them. But a guy with an idea did. A guy with with the knowledge and the know-how did. 
there's a, there's a cultural influence right there that you can now track all the way through Europe. There's a cultural influence there that shows us where the Vikings landed in the Americas and how we're able to tell the site is not indigenous because they're working iron at uh, the, the place in New, Newfoundland, or yes, Newfoundland, which of I course I know can. the details. Have you heard the story about the, um, the uh, slab with Nordic writing on it found mm-hmm. in Minnesota? The Kensington Runestone. Yeah. Yep. Is that legit? Um, I mean, I it's it's a problem, you know, because what was it a once again found a stone in his field? Is the yep. background behind it? If I remember, yep. Right. The farmer found the stone in his field, and and it was apparently a, or it was apparently in a root ball. You know, a tree fell over, and the roots are there, and the stone the stone was taken away, so the prevenience is gone. But the stone, when you look at the, when, when you look at the, when you read it, yeah, it's, it's in runes, it's runic, um, but it's missing, like it has a date on it, you know, it says this is the event that happened, but it's missing a bunch of the uh, linguistic styles within that writing system that would have been indicative to the time period in a way that you don't see until later time, later history. That's that's weird, but okay. But is, um, it, is it far-fetched to think that Viking explorers, I mean, there's evidence they came to the East Coast and um, now they I, I don't USA think it's far-fetched and, at all. In Canada. Um, c- considering how, 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 how preeminent they were on the water and in inland waterways just like in europe i don't see why they they wouldn't the evidence isn't there to say yes or no right now it's just a hypothesis and until we find absolute 100 percent evidence it, it's going to be it's it's just going to be a, a postulation i mean why stop at this one spot when it's not that far to continue going but you also got to think of it in their minds. How far are you going to go without supplies? How far are you going to go into an area that might be hostile? You're not going to keep going if you see some people on the bank and they scream at you and shoot at you. You're not going to keep going lest there's more. You know, I've only got 50 guys in my boat. Oh, arrows took out three of them. I now have 47 guys in my boat and I can count 500 on the beach. I'm not going to go any further. You know, I will do my best to not interact with those people, you know. And when I go back, I will tell great stories about these people and obviously embellish it to show that I didn't just run away, which is where you get scrailing. I, I know, right? <laughs> but, you know, to to think that they got all the way to Minnesota, once again, without the indigenous people noticing them, I know there are some stories, but if you look at the origins of some of those stories or the localities, they're all on the coast. They're not in Minnesota. They're not in Canada. Yeah. They're not in the northern part of the, you know, the United States. There, in they're, they're living, all, yeah, yeah. Living and over this, here, the only stories we really talk about in elementary, middle school is the French fur trade in this area yeah. because you had the Ojibwe and Chippewa tribes and a bunch of the 
Sioux, I think, farther west, but uh, I'm not going to try to butcher any of that history, but the interactions between the traders and mm-hmm. the tribes that were living here. Yeah. But there's, well, albeit they didn't teach a whole lot of that history in, uh, you know, the... the no, they taught the bare minimum. And, <laughs> and there's some people find here out and the interaction go so well, but we didn't commit genocide, but we did. And they're, they're but we did, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I the, the, the Kensington Runestone is one of those the things that if you look at all of all of the the data that's come from it, the fact that rock is almost impossible to age, like a rock artifact, you can't carbon test it. You're very, I mean, if you find a rock artifact, you're you're going off of the provenience and the data that comes with it. If it doesn't have that, well, it could be. It also couldn't be. And there's that 50-50 mix, and you can't say yes or no. The 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 writing style is conducive to the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. And that still occurred in Scandinavia, especially like on graves. Um, it's, you know, it's missing a bunch of the, the, the specific alphabet indicators of its age, you know, the language changes based on influences, based on slang. I mean, look at English, English changes every other day. Um, words are added, words are taken away. It, the, the, you know, people go from saying are not to ain't, you, you know, that if, if you didn't know what that word meant, if you didn't know where that came from, you would look at ain't and be like, where did this come from? Where, you know, this isn't English. This is something else. Well, you can see that in the writing. And then the kicker is that the guy who found it was, was a Norwegian immigrant from an area where they still utilize this character writing on gravestone. And it coincidentally is something he can read, which he was the one who said, this is Scandinavian and this is what it says. You know, that's, that's kind of one of those, you know, um, it, it doesn't add up, you know, there's, that's, and if it had been found in situ, if it had been found with anything else that could have been indicative of its of its actual provenience or its or its authenticity, I mean, it makes mention of a of a bunch of burials, a bunch of a bunch of guys dead, and they buried them. Where are those? You know, the, the, there's there's distinct possibilities. There's material culture there that could be found. All of that land, I'm pretty sure, has been tilled up, turned into farmland at some point. It would have been found by now, and it hasn't. Um, and that's and and that's where you know, as much as it would be cool, yes, it'd be great. I mean, all of these, all of these, these you know, ancient aliens would be great to find. They, you know, Sasquatch would be great to find. Uh, the, there's a there's a professor of archaeology in Vermont. His name's Ken Fader. And he does podcast uh, with a couple others about and it's archaeology archaeological fantasies debunking stuff like this he's flat out said uh, in at least one episode and it struck me so much i mean it was like maybe it was the only one clear part he said because the sound isn't that great but archaeologists are nerds we want this stuff to be real because we're nerds there's just no evidence of it so we're not going to get excited until we have evidence 
Um, but he pointed out something that was kind of, in, it, you know, proves the, the provenience of things being so required to date something is um, the tower that's in, in Maine or Massachusetts on the coast there. There's a castle. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. The Newport Tower. The Newport Tower. And it's a round circular tower like you'd see in Europe. And nobody knows where it comes from. There's no records. No one knows who built it. And it was it's always been this big mystery. And it's been tied to, oh, the Vikings built it. Or, oh, early people's, you know, the, the Templars built it and all this stuff. Well, they did some excavations there. And underneath the structure, deeper than the structure, they found ceramics, which is great. Except that ceramic dates to the 1650s. Which means the tower was built sometime after, you know, 16, 1650, 1660, something like that. Well, looking into more historical documents, they stop looking for a tower and they start looking for a lighthouse. Boom. There it is. They find record of the guy who owned the property and made it. You know, what do you say? Oh, it's a mysterious tower. Well, that's a better story and it sells more papers. So. <laughs> One of the so I was in the comment section a while back, and somebody brought up the uh, the Chinese reaching to California. Mm-hmm. And I remember you commented something that you weren't familiar with it. And I actually I I couldn't think of the right names at the time, but there's a running theory that uh, I want to say Admiral Zheng He. Yes, Zheng He. Yeah, actually sailed to California. And this theory, I theorized that there were records of that pre Mao Zedong when he did the the cultural, what do you call it, cultural, not cultural reset, but uh, whatever. However, yeah, that. However, he decided yeah. to word that, but um, and because uh, they found a Chinese junk off of the coast or something like that that dated back so far to whatever time period, whatever dynasty. Um, well, there's, so I, I've not heard of the junk being found. I know that the Chinese were, were capable of building very large ships. Um, and it, because... and not necessarily junk, but it's, a, I'm trying to send the hamster to the back of the, the Rolodex of an archives in my brain of the random um, shit that I remember. <laughs> well, you know, I, I went over, I went over that. Because somebody asked me, somebody also pointed out um, there's there's coin armor that was made by the, the Tinglet, I think, the indigenous peoples off, off the coast, or the, who live like on Vancouver Island, you know, or on, on the, the coast there of British Columbia. And yes, there's Chinese coin armor, because Chinese coins were not worth anything, and uh, fur traders could get a lot of them. And you trade these coins, these worthless coins, to the indigenous people who don't have a use for coin, but they could turn it into something like scale armor, or they could sharpen them, you know, pound them out to where they have a crude arrowhead or something like that. Um, but that happens after after European contact. The, the ships that have been turning up 
ancient or have been turning up stuff from the from the far east are galleons there's two galleons that are unaccounted for that could have wound up somewhere right off the coast like one's off of san francisco the other one's off of northern oregon in theory one of which has is called the beehive ship or the beehive wreck and people keep saying that the indigenous peoples would swim off the coast dive down to where this wreck is and take the beeswax off it well beeswax floats so it makes sense that it washes up on the bank on the beach uh but there has been this wax found and they did dna tests on it it comes from bees in the philippines um but the spanish had trade networks all over the eastern pacific um all of the currents go clockwise in the pacific so it's very possible that a derelict chinese ship was drifted all the way there's that that fishing boat that came across after fukushima mm-hmm. um drifted on the currents took it a couple of years but it made it um so i mean with with the current system working like that yes it's possible that stuff got over here the chinese themselves when zheng he was admiral they were making ships that were north of 300 feet long there was a rudder post found on the found in the yangtze they dredged it up during a project and the rudder post was like 37 feet to turn this ship which is insane I mean, that, the, the, the British haven't figured out two masts. And the <laughs> Chinese are like, look at us. We have a rudder the size of a stadium. Because, you know, <laughs> hey, why not? Um, but, uh, you know, if, if again, it's, it's one of those, there would be some sort of cultural exchange or genetic exchange because... Humans like to like like food, and they like fornication, and don't matter where you're from, that happens. <laughs> so there would be there would be a more recent uh, 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 addition of an Asian, you know, ge- genetic combination into the pool that could be that could be tracked. Um, but then. Also, the question is, is why? You know, if you're getting all of your trade from the South, South China Sea and Southeast Asia there, why truck out across something that you don't know is on the other side? Uh, to, to put the tinfoil hat on for a sec, make the argument of, you know, <clears throat> you know, a great king, if you, you know, air quotes, that time period, you know, go back to Roman times, you know, all the way up to uh, early Russian uh, if you expanded your land, that made you better than the last guy. That made oh yeah, that's that's the whole point of colonization. It's like okay, well we've tapped all the resources here. We have all the trade routes we have here. Uh, we can't go east because of this, that, and the other thing. What's a, what's across the pond? Let's go check it out. Well, um, <clears throat> could do. You you also have to consider the what was available time period in respect to ships and you have to consider the people on the ships it's easy to order somebody to go look you know columbus was in danger of being chucked off the ship himself (laughs) five weeks out or more oh they we we haven't seen anything you said we would have seen land three weeks ago we haven't seen land water's running out food's running out and then land there it is 
but he almost got chucked overboard. Um, the uh, I would be willing to say that it would be more possible for the Chinese to make it following the Ring of Fire, following up the coast and down, than it would be for the Malian Empire to make it across to uh, South America uh, before Europeans did. Not saying that they couldn't, it just, it makes more sense. It's like the Bering Strait, and I've said this before, is 55 miles across. You can sail a ship inside of land, inside of safety, the whole way, and you're, you're not going not gonna to get lost. Sailing directly out, you know, there'd be monsters there. You know, we're not we're not counting superstitions. <laughs> we're not counting, uh, you know, the weather patterns they weren't they wouldn't be familiar with. You know, when I pointed out that uh, Tor Hirondal had an advantage in the raw when he sailed across the Atlantic, even the first time when it sank. You know, he sailed an Egyptian style ship across the Atlantic. Are we going to get there? Well, it's, it's a grand idea. Even if he didn't bring them with him, if he, even if he didn't have them with him, he knew which direction he was going. He would he had a base in the back of his head. This is how the winds are because I've experienced them and I've learned about them somewhere else. This is what the currents do. This is you know roughly how this is what the weather patterns at this time of the year look like. That's all factors that nobody necessarily would have available to them back then. Um, you can drift for a long time. And I've, I've had people say, Hey, what if they, what if they got shipwrecked? What if, what if the storm drifted, blew them off course? Um, well, that's great. Now you're factoring in. Did your supplies get contaminated? Do you have enough food? Is your ship damaged? Is it sinking? You know, one of the, the longest drift. And I, of course, I, um, Lee, Song, Song Li, Li Song, I can't, I, I think, uh, the, the, the Chinese sailor, um, in 1943, he was the only survivor of the ship that he was on. And he was on a raft, which was made out of some oil drums and, and like a, like a newspaper pallet with a, with a frame above it. He had three tins of water and some, and a, and a couple of biscuits. And he was the only one to survive the torpedoing of the ship. He was adrift for 193 days, and I don't think he was more than 300 miles off the coast of Brazil. <laughs> and he didn't see land until the last half, the last couple days of that, where he finally drifted up, and he almost died. He was he was very small. He's less than 100 pounds, you know. He's, he's eating raw fish and birds that he manages to catch, and recycling water through his own system and drinking it from what's left of a piece of canvas that's catching some water. And that's in modern times with ships going by and he didn't get picked up. It's a tall order to say, hey, a bunch of people who are certainly not expecting this in a ship that would not be conducive to crossing an ocean, surviving a, surviving a storm, let's say they survived the storm, but landing the lucky the lucky dice to make it and then it's also not, it's it's not necessarily counter you know in, um it, it's not including the fact that what if you get there and the people there don't like you 
you know, everybody who says, you know, the Africans got there and they influenced the Olmec to make the Olmec heads or the Olmec themselves are African. Um, how about all the other peoples who are there who uh, they're well-fed, they've got the power of numbers, they know the area. Well, what's to stop them from, if you piss them off because you don't know their culture, what's to stop them from just wiping you out to a person and then you were never there? You know, there's a lot of factors that are not included when you look at, you know, the hypothesis of, of, of people getting to the Americas at whenever, via whatever, are fine. Are you looking at all of the, 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 all of the possibilities, all of the factors, you know, uh, the Vikings could have made it all the way to Florida. If you have a boat full of 50 Vikings and they pissed off, they piss off the Seminole and the Seminole killed them all. Did Vikings make it to Florida? You, you know, you can't say yes, you can't say no. Until you, hey, you find a Viking with a Seminole arrow through his noggin, and, and he's buried on the beach. And he says, <laughs> I've been here since, you know, 825. And you're like, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, if, if, we, if, if someone went to court, if someone was committed, a, was, was, was convicted of a crime based on some of the evidence on, on the quality of evidence that some of the ancient aliens people and, and the pseudoscience people count on, there would be, they, they, they would be screaming unfairness and they'd be demanding a retrial and they'd be fighting it until the day they died, claiming their innocence because some of the stuff that people are just hanging their hat on, not only are they hanging their hat, they're hanging their whole coat on it. It just doesn't stand up. You know, you go, okay, yes, this could be cool. Did you factor in this, 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 and this? And they're like, um, oh, you're lying to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's like, am I though? I mean, the cabal doesn't pay worth a damn. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's interesting. Oh, sorry, that was a ramble. No, no, no worries. It's, I'm, we're pushing three hours here, so just wanted to... One last question uh, sure. that I close with with everyone. So if there's somebody looking to get into the archaeology, anthropology field, fields, what advice would you throw up to them? Um, well, uh, obviously pick a good school. Pick a school that you want to go to. There's a difference between good schools and ones you want to go to. Um, research the programs first. I mean, look at what their look at what their specialty is. Look at look see if they have a focus. I mean, you're not gonna le- you're not gonna learn about underwater archaeology at the University of North Dakota. You might want to go to Florida for that. You know, um, uh, see see what they offer in respect to field work. Um, you can be really book smart. You can be really really you know, classroom smart, but the moment you get out in the field, you're going to find that, oh, I should have paid attention or I should have done something different. Um, if you're, uh, if you're, if you're doing it and if you're in the field, if, if you're in the program and you, you are enjoying what you're doing, uh, go to the conferences, present papers. Um, I'm, I can tell you this because I regret not doing some of this stuff. Um, take field schools figure out how to do it. Um, 
if if finances are are like for me were they were an issue for me if they're an issue for people who are looking uh pull out some stops and try to try to sort it out do every internship you can um if if work study is offered if volunteer hours are offered uh do them and it might it might you might be busy and you might be pushing really hard to get everything done you might be exhausted but it can only help it can only pad your resume pad your cv and when you are graduated and you are out looking for a job if you have if, if you have 25 or 30 hours of lab experience and somebody sees that on your resume they might go hey we're going to be excavating this site and then we have to curate all of it this person has a little bit of lab experience this one doesn't that might be the tipping point on who gets hired for that job um be flexible i know people who who are very specific in what they do and they're great at it and they've been asked to do things on other projects and they kind of go i don't do that in my mind and, and from what i've seen you know if you're flexible you learn more and you continue to just improve on on your toolkit of what you have in in respect to knowledge and experience only by a marshalltown trowel um and a wide brim hat is always a good idea especially in the sun <laughs> you know and it doesn't have to be an indiana jones hat i get so much crap for that <laughs> um but you know enjoy it it's it's a really it's a it's a very unique and rewarding job i love it I'm not going to get rich off of, off of it. Um, I am, I, I, yeah, it's not, it's not a job for people who want money, but it is something that it, it's profound in what you get to be a part of sometimes. I mean, sorting through rusty cans and old mining site is one thing, but being able to uh, experience the, the return of ancestors to, to tribal groups or see something that hasn't been seen in you know five thousand years and hold it in your hands is is pretty intense pretty amazing so um it's it the, the more work you put into it the more you'll get from it and it's great every bit of it so well thank you again for yeah, yeah. Time to well, be thanks for having me i got some stories i can tell you off here there's some stuff oh there. sure yeah, there's some <laughs> things i can't mention on here uh but... oh sure but appreciate it. Thank cool. you. And thank you for everyone yeah. tuning in to Twitch. And we'll catch you next time. Yeah. Thanks. This has been fun. Thank you again, everyone, for taking the time to tune in to this week and each and every week, whether you're on an audio-only platform or checking it out on the YouTube ch channel. Keep up to date with future guests, live recordings, and new episodes by following the show on Facebook and Instagram. Both are at Rules of the Arena Podcast. And most, many of you, excuse me, have asked, how can you help out? And if you'd be so kind, head over to Apple Podcasts, Audible, or wherever you're listening, and drop a review, and make sure to leave a comment in there and let me know what you think of the show. And if you'd like to really help out, tell people about it, and if you think they might want to listen in, or you can share it on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like, you can click over the link in the episode notes where I have a little tip jar set up for just or you can head over to patreon.com slash rules of the arena where you can donate just $1 a month. Really helps me keep super producer Casey at Line Ninja Studios busy and allows me to take the show on the road to bring you more episodes. 
Also, keep an eye out this summer for the return of the store. I am shooting for July where you can find all new ROA gear, limited release items, and re limited release items, excuse me, in collaboration with different artists and guests. Last but not least, go check out my other show called No Story Left Behind. You can find NSLB on Facebook and Instagram at, and, and Instagram at No Story Left Behind Podcast. All episodes are released on its own feed wherever you find your favorite shows. And also have the episodes on YouTube as well. And just go to the ROA channel and click the NSLB playlist. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, show ideas, or would like to be a guest, feel free to shoot me an email. Gordon at BlindNinjaStudios.com Thank you again, everyone, and we will catch you next week.